and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. Happy 2024. Yeah, happy happy 2024. We're here. This, Last time this, we recorded, you were in my house. It was before yes. it was before the the new year had hit, but it was technically the first. It's it's a weird order of events. That's so what you, I mean. It, we were we were unstuck in time for a yeah, little bit. Yes. We had to talk about the future as if it was the present. Right. And now we're finally back where we belong in different states recording remotely <laughs> and we're in the present yet again the forces that be we're yeah. like we're like two magnets <laughs> kind of yeah we're both two positive passing in the night we're both positive exactly it's too much <laughs> pressure for the garden state and the empire state and secaucus specifically and secaucus yeah <laughs> speaking of that oh uh, yeah i think we wanted to open so we did a lot of announcements uh, on our Game of the Year episode. Also, I just want to once again thank everyone for the kind feedback on that episode and on our show in general. Those episodes are always a big deal for us, and this year's has done exceptionally well, uh, and it's really mind-blowing to see, and I'm just very glad people seem to have a lot of fun with that episode. Yeah, I don't mind saying that's our most listened to episode by a huge margin already. <laughs> it's it's remarkable how many people have downloaded and listened to that episode, uh, so thank you to everybody who has done that, and if you stuck around after that, if you're listening to this one also, thank you. Welcome. Also, I just want to thank everyone who collaborated with us for that episode. Those episodes yeah. are a huge group effort. You know, AJ, our producer, everyone who shared their game of the year in those audio clips will who composes the music i feel like we always want those episodes to feel like a, a big collaboration so i'm really glad it worked out yeah totally anyway we wanted to just kind of briefly address some of the updates we shared on that episode in case you have listened to or you missed the part where we did but we have fully revamped our website into the cast that online uh, that's been our landing page for years it's where you can find places to listen to the show you can review us on apple Podcasts and spotify and there were links to other places too like the discord most notably um but we thought it'd be a good idea to kind of more directly invest in that space so there's a lot more on Into the Cast that online now than there was. Uh, there are links to all our old writing, and we're also going to post new writing there. We've had a variety of different blogs, and we had a newsletter at one point. And rather than having it just like scattered all over the internet, like let's all let's let's preserve this, let's preserve our own history, and have it all there on the website. Yeah. Um, we also have a merch store. This is something that has been asked for for years, a very happy problem for people asking for merch. <laughs> yeah. But we wanted to make sure if we were to have a merch store that it was, you know, that it was set up correctly and ethically and sustainably. And we found a provider that works for us. And it now exists. If you go into the cast online, there's a merch store there. There is a Sakakas Junctions shirt, which is one of the more popular items, which is hilarious. Uh, it's amazing that we decided to merchandise the Junction before the actual place did. I don't know. I don't even know if they could. It's not really like a for-profit Junction, but right. still. Yeah, there there are a lot of shirts. Like if you just type in Sakakas shirt onto Google, there's a lot of people who are like trying to rep their hometown of, of Sakakas. But like in terms of the old timey way people used to make their way through New Jersey in like Oregon. Oregon Trail era America. No, nobody seems to care that much about the junction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except us and the many people who have purchased this pocket <laughs> shirt. But all the merch is there. Uh, we have items too that feature the art of our dear friend Scott Wilkinson, who does a lot of the art for the show. Uh, so you can support her as well by buying those items. And uh, yeah, it's all at Into the Cast Online. 
we also have just started to do ad reads. So this is a very much a work in progress. But right now, uh, you can buy personal ad reads, which we will, you know, you could write like happy birthday messages or shout outs or whatever you want. Obviously, you know, within reason and we can reject requests if we feel it's inappropriate or whatnot. All the caveats are listed on the website. But we have personal ad reads for $50. And we also have commercial ad reads for $200. All the information is on the website there. So if you're interested in either of those, into the cast online. Yeah. On on the topic of ad reads, we had a couple of people buy them uh, already. I, I think the plan is to get to those pretty soon. We're still just like sorting through our process in terms of fitting those in. So we won't have them in this episode, but maybe starting the next one. And at the very latest, the one after that, I think is when ad reads will start popping up. Alongside that comes the uh, if you are paying for the $10 tier of the Patreon, you can get an ad free version of the episode as well. An open question to I think the listeners, let us know if you're Patreon backers for those ad free episodes. Would you want those without the personal ads also or just without commercial ads if those are bought? I'm, I'm curious, you know, the kind of give and take there. Um, I also know having not done any, it's maybe hard to tell what you like or don't like considering they don't exist yet. Um, but just <laughs> just let us know. I'll put a little post on the Patreon and just ask that more directly. But please get back to us on that. Yeah, I think I think for both personal and commercial ad reads, it's very much us seeing if we can kind of do it ourselves. you know, rather than yeah. having like uh, advertisers ask us to read things like we want to see if we can just handle the whole process. So again, very much a work in progress. Share all feedback you have. We're very open to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I will also just say on, on the topic of merch and Scouts art, I think uh, we, we have heard from people that they want some more stuff like whales, for example. So we we have that in the works. Uh, so we'll, we'll shout out on the show when we have more merch available on there uh, outside of the stuff that uh, started when we launched the shop. I will just also shout out alongside that, that we have old logos available in the merch store right now. And that's going to be available until the start of our next season. Because our whole thought was like, we want to have merch that spans as far back in time is when people started asking us for merch so you can get the season one logo on some stuff and you can get the season three logo on some stuff that will go away sometime around june or july when when our gamecube bonus comes out yeah and it will continuously update the merch store with new items as well so just keep an eye on that yeah we space. have some other like very silly stuff in the works that i'm yeah. excited to to reveal we'll keep you posted but that's into the cast at online thank you for listening those are all of our updates that's it that's it. Anyway, you want to talk about some video games? I would love to talk about video games. Let's do it. I, just to shout out again, it's been a long time since you and I have recorded. The episode that came out last week is one that we recorded in, what was it, the last week of, of December of 2023, I guess. So it's uh, been two weeks. It's been just about two weeks, which like for us feels like a really long time. As we always say, if we take one week off, it's like wild, but two weeks off is as if we took a whole summer vacation again. Yeah. And I just, I just feel like there's so much that has happened in between now and then. So I, I will just say on my end, I went to California. I was in the Bay Area. I was in San Francisco for a, a while, for New Year's specifically. And also, I took a trip into Humboldt County, which is like in the mountains of California. I had never been to San Francisco, so that was like a whole thing by itself. But also like kind of camping in the woods for New Year's Eve and day specifically was like wild and like going on a lot of hikes. I fell in a river. Just a I'm sorry. No, it, no, it was great. No, I, it was I, my fault. It was good. It was it was a really good time. But I, I have been thinking for the past, like, I don't know, month or so, like, what am I going to bring with me on this trip in terms of yeah. games? And I, I was deciding between a couple of things. Obviously, the Steam Deck is like up there. It's like, OK, do you bring the Steam Deck with you into the woods? I thought no. Also, just like needing to pack that, fitting it into a backpack, like, OK, how, how can I make things like kind of as, as small as possible? So then the Switch 
became the obvious next step if I'm not bringing the Steam Deck. And the Switch I did bring with me didn't play at all. Like 0% played the Switch. I had downloaded a bunch of things I was expecting to play and then just didn't play any of them. So the two things I did end up playing a lot of were the Miu Mini Plus, which I've talked about before, uh, and the Retroid Pocket Flip, which I've also talked about before. If you don't know anything about this or about my like horrible rabbit hole deep dive into retro handhelds, I mean, you're better off not hearing about it, (laughs) if I'm being totally honest. Honestly, the person who I talk to the most about this is our mutual friend Dom. Yeah. He and I are literally texting each other just about every single day about retro handhelds that are like being announced or like our, our horrible uh, deep dives into into that space. But I'm, I'm trying to pare everything down because I've collected too many of them and I'm just like, I need to stop with this. So where I've landed right now is I have the Mi Mini Plus, which is like a really small kind of pocketable device that is really good for everything. Pretty much up to PS1 is what they say, but I don't think it's very good for PS1. I'm really just playing like Game Boy, Game Boy Color and Game Boy Advance stuff on it. I'm not even playing like other retro stuff like if it was made for a tv i'm not playing it on on the miu mini i will say it's good for super nintendo as well i've played a good amount of earthbound and super metroid on that device or another miu mini i could see something like earthbound being really good on it i i just feel personally like if it's if it was made to be shown on a tv i kind of want to play it on like a bigger device totally it is interesting to remember i feel i i actually have a lot of thoughts on this about the GameCube, which we'll talk about mm. you know, on that episode. But yeah, it is interesting to remember when this era of games was the AAA showcase thing. Right. And there's even though like we've come a long way graphically, there is still that requirement in some ways of having it on the big screen. Yes. You know, like even Super Metroid on the go feels compromised to having it on the big screen, which is why I eventually just played it on Switch docked. Yes. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I feel I feel that very strongly, which I didn't think I because initially when I started getting into all these things, I got into it when we did our Game Boy Advance episode because I just wanted like a really easy pocketable device that was able to play the entire Game Boy Advance library, which I, I got with what was it? The Ambernick R. 351p i think it was called they all have horrible names and anyway i play i played a big chunk of the game boy advance library on that until our friend kyle Starr gave us the the kyle boy advances which was really helpful for that and just playing it on original hardware is like generally also better beautiful yeah i have it in this like it's like the rose the beast keeps in the glass <laughs> thing it's like i just have it like preserved forever in this beautiful case yeah, yeah. so anyway that having been said uh the Mi mini plus came with me i was playing it a lot i'll talk about the games i've been playing on it and and the other one is the Retroid Pocket Flip, which I'm playing like pretty much everything after the Game Boy Advance and up to like the Sega Dreamcast, because there are a couple of games which I've talked about a lot, like Virtua Tennis. I'm playing all the time still and Cannon Spike. I'm playing all the time still. And those are games <laughs> that I feel like, although, you know, again, like going back to like, hey, they should be displayed on a TV. Those are two games that I feel like are so perfectly suited for like pick up and play, like play it on the subway experiences. I completely agree. I, I, I didn't mean to laugh when you said Cannon Spike. I'm just like number of people playing cannon spike in the world one <laughs> it's like, i just saw it so visibly but you're totally right that and, and virtual tennis are incredible picks yeah, yeah they're just they're so wonderful for that and also like the retroid pocket is great for psp um but the thing that i've been playing the most on it is is some stuff for the nintendo ds which is weird mm. because that is a console that has two screens and the retroid pocket flip notably has one screen i'll talk at the end of the episode about what i'm playing on the retroid pocket flip and the next thing and and the 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 thing to kind of like round this entire trilogy of systems out for me so miu mini plus retroid pocket flip i also picked up this week the ein odin 2 pro Mm. which is 
notably like the most powerful Android console you can buy right now by a huge margin to the point where it seems like people don't even really know what the upper limit of what it can play is because it's limited more by the emulator software that like teams of people around the world are making than it is by the hardware itself. There are people playing like the Nintendo Switch on it, which like, hey, that's there's like legal gray areas. That's like a legal like no, no area. That's like a legal red area specifically. Don't do that. Um, (laughs) It is illegal. Yes. Uh, I mean, those games are like widely like if you're if you're man, if you're like downloading Celeste to play on there and you haven't paid for it anywhere, like, come on, man. Anyway, we don't have to get into that. Um, I got the Inoden 2 Pro specifically for like PlayStation 2 and GameCube. GameCube Mm. because we're doing a GameCube bonus this year. And although it is handheld, which I think is great. Weirdly enough, my plan with it is to play it docked a lot. Like you can just plug it into a TV and then connect a Bluetooth controller to it and just play it docked, which is great. And for those of you wondering why I'm not using the Steam Deck for that, I just find the Steam Deck a little bit too finicky and I've gotten really, really, really good at like managing and figuring out how to emulate stuff on Android. So like that, that's just where I'm at, like mentally. I love the Steam Deck, but I agree. The Steam Deck dock has always kind of thrown, it's always an issue. And I don't know, I don't ever know what's causing it, but it always takes a few tries. Yeah, there are always like weird little problems with it. And I, I, there's the fun tinkering, which is like half of the, the experience of getting these retro handhelds in the first place. And then there's like the not fun tinkering, the like, I'm just like, you know, am I messing with settings to make things perform like, you know, one frame per second better than before that's fine i'm cool with that when i'm in like entire like shaders aren't loading or like the sky is like i had such a hard time getting a thousand year door to run initially when we were playing Mm. that for our bonus like that that was such a huge hurdle for me i feel like i cut off like a week of my being able to play that game because i like couldn't get it to run on the steam deck the way i wanted it to um so that having been said i have the inode and two for that i haven't really played with that a whole bunch because the sd card that i got in the mail was corrupted (laughs) so it just like anytime i added a file to it it deleted another file which is like i've never experienced that before so i haven't messed with that yet i'll talk about that eventually once i get that up and running because everyone i've heard who has one is like so effusive about it i'll give a shout out actually to john Voorhees over at max stories who did a great episode about picking one up and it's just like so over the moon about that device that was like really the thing that pushed me over the edge but i do like that flexibility of like i can plug it in play it docked have a controller plugged in like i could use it to stream a lot of gamecube which i'm planning on doing like as we get closer mm. to that bonus yeah. but also at any point i could just unplug it from my computer and like play that stuff handheld upscaled to like 1080p or above amazing like what a great experience that's going to be i'm really excited for that but all of that having been said there are i would say four games that i played the most on this trip i'm going to talk about all of them in different segments uh so the one that i wanted to start with because i think it's the one that you will probably find the most interesting of the four of them is a game that's called pokemon unbound which yeah. I feel like is a little bit of like leaning over an abyss in a way and like just looking down at another possible rabbit hole to jump into and like deciding <laughs> like I'm like I'm like dipping a toe into the abyss to see if it's water or not but it might just that be is, empty space you know that's like I you just brought me back to 1998 yes I have glasses and braces and I am <laughs> buying paint and I also buy a single warhammer figurine <laughs> And even at age eight, where I'm bringing <laughs> like at least five game guides to school every day, yeah. wearing gray on gray sweatsuits, <laughs> I looked at that Warhammer figurine and I was like, nah, nah, I can't, I can't do this. 
Maybe in another life, but I, I can't add this to my plate. <laughs> that's like that's it's very similar to the experience that you and I had also with uh with World of Warcraft. Um yeah. just being like, I'm gonna play one expansion, have a really bad time, and then bounce. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pokemon Unbound. So yes. there is there is this entire world of ROM hacks for Pokemon, which we have talked about a little bit in the past here and there. There are a couple ones that I think I brought up on the show before. One of them specifically that I really loved was Pokemon Crystal Clear. I brought up like yeah. years ago, which is a really great ROM hack of, of Pokemon Crystal. So it's like a Game Boy Color ROM hack that allows you to play the game as if it was an open world game. So they remove a lot of the limitations you would normally have from Pokemon Crystal. You can start in either Kanto or Johto, the two regions in that game. You can pick from like, I think it's 15 different starters. You can like customize your character a little bit. And then when you make it out into the world, it's a little bit like almost like an Elder Scrolls game in that the world is like slightly scaling to where you're at. So as you continue to get more and more gym badges, the rest of the world will level itself up. So there's a constant sense of challenge and progression throughout the world. And that doesn't mean that like you can go into any area immediately because there are some areas that are a little bit blocked off just by like level gates. So like, you know, even though the level of everything is rising, if you go to Victory Road at the beginning of the game, like you're going to get crushed, obviously, um, yeah. because there needs to be like that challenge differential still. But that having been said, great ROM hack. And there are others here and there that I think are just really, really great. I remember there was there was a remake of Pokemon Gold and Silver on the Game Boy Advance, which is like an amazing experience to be able to play that. I mean, that's a game that you and I love, 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 love love and to be able to play that with like the Game Boy Advance era of quality of life stuff and just like graphically I just feel like it's so iconic and so interesting like I love what the community has been doing on that front you're about to say something yeah oh yeah I was just I was remembering what you brought up about crystal clear and it's interesting to me to remember that it felt like parts of sword and shield were attempting those ideas the yes. wild area was sort of like dipping a toe into that abyss exactly. in some ways. Yes. I think ideally fan communities can sometimes bring up new ideas that are then kind of folded into the the main game. Actually, you bring up Bethesda. I feel like Bethesda is pretty historically good at that. Like seeing what the modders are doing and even hiring some of those people to work at Bethesda down yes, the road. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love I love that stuff. And I love I love yeah. what the what the community has been doing in terms of making all of these ROM hacks. But the the place where I start to bristle, like the, I think the the version of that that I, that I tend to not enjoy as much is like the complete ground up we've made a whole new game ROM hacks. Like I think when you're mm -hmm. building on top of one of the mainline Pokémon games, I think that's like generally speaking going to be something that I will gravitate to more or like want to complete more. Things like like Crystal Clear is like kind of a, you know, a shuffle and a remake of of Pokemon Crystal, I think was really cool. There's a there's a oh, my God, what is it called? Um, oh, my God. I think it's just called Emerald Rogue. There's a there's a game called Pokemon Emerald Rogue, which is a roguelike version of Pokemon Emerald that came out last year. That is like amazing. That's um, perfect for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so cool. I'm, I'm actually surprised I didn't talk about it more on the show, but it literally is like uh, a Slay the Spire map and you choose different routes that you can run through. That's so awesome. like you pick you pick a route, you run through it, you battle like trainers and some Pokemon and stuff and you can catch more Pokemon if you want to or not and then make your way through as it gets harder and harder and harder it's just like a really cool game so things like that I tend to gravitate to the version of it that's like we've made a new Pokemon game totally new scripts 
sometimes they make even like new Pokemon from the ground up. Like they don't even have like any Pokemon from the other games in them. I find that that stuff ends up being like more of a miss than a hit in a lot of cases. I think like yeah. when you're going in and designing your own Pokemon, frequently they're not looking as good as, as you know, what the Pokemon companies come up with. Like say what you will about, you know, the a lot of people will say that there's been a decline in the quality of Pokemon designs over the years. I don't think that's true personally. I think it ebbs and flows. I think some generations are great and some are a little bit weaker. Yes. Like I actually think that Gen 3 overall is in some ways stronger than the first. Anyone who says mm. the first generation is like definitively the best has not played any of the other games because <laughs> we got a lot of misses in that in that 151. I'll tell yeah. you that. And even I, I found, especially like in, in conversations that you and I have had talking about like pretty much the entire lineage of Pokemon over the years, I feel like there are some Pokemon that are like widely hated in the like hardcore quote unquote Pokemon community that you and I love. Like one of them for me from Pokemon X and Y is Clef Key that people just like hate. It's just like really? a, yeah, it's just keys. It's just a key ring. <laughs> I love the inanimate object Pokemon. Yes. Yeah. Like I love, I, Garboder is one of my favorite Pokemon. And yes, he's from the like implied New Jersey part of the map <laughs> in black and white. There's like a route that's right outside what is essentially New York. And it's like, here's Jersey. You can catch trash. You can catch trash, <laughs> small or big trash. Which one do you Trubbish. want? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so all of that having been said, Pokemon Unbound is a complete ground up new Pokemon game um, that has been made okay. by fans. It has notably no original Pokemon in it. It is all Pokemon that have previously been in other games. Specifically, it's all the Pokemon, I think, from Gen 1 through Gen 7, uh, which is pretty remarkable because that's a huge collection of Pokemon. Yeah. What is Gen 7 again? Is that X and Y? I th no, I think it's after that. I think that's um, oh, I'm sorry. It might Sword be and Shield, I think. Sword and Shield? I think it's Sun and Moon is 7, but maybe we should double check. I am I'm checking. just curious. It is Sun and Moon. Sun and Moon is Gen 7. Got yeah, it. yeah. Okay, so okay. basically before the Switch, everything up to yes. before the Switch games. Got yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so it has all the Pokemon from Gen 1 to Gen 7, which is pretty wild uh, because a lot of those Pokemon were created in an era where the Pokemon Company and Game Freak were making 3D Pokemon games. So that meant that they needed to go in and make sprites for all of those, like any anything oh, yeah. from, I guess, X and Y onwards, they needed to make sprites for, which is pretty wild. It has also all of the like moves and abilities from all of those. It has so many different quality of life improvements, but it also has a completely like new script, new region, kind of new everything. And the reason I say that I tend to bristle against a lot of the like, hey, we've introduced a new region and a new story and everything is like a lot of the people that make ROM hacks. And this is not to disparage them because the amount of work that they do is like remarkable. And all of these, I feel like a lot of these ROM hacks have like different pros and cons to them across the board. But one like weird unifying thing amongst all of them is they all have these like really dark stories <laughs> like they all yeah they all want to be like so like adult it's like oh yeah po pokemon needs to grow up with us you know like i i i played pokemon red and blue on the game boy and now i'm 45 years old and i think that pokemon should fuck or die or something <laughs> <laughs> I, there is a weird tendency to like the minute like you have control of a child friendly ip people make it gritty and yes. dark yes i'm not saying that can't work but usually right. it feels very like trite to me yeah you know I, it feels kind of like shadow the hedgehog e which yeah. i've turned around on shadow specifically but <laughs> it feels like that you know Un unlike the most recent warner brothers film wonka which <laughs> Sometimes you just want to bring things up and I don't trust I don't trust the connection. Why is Wonka here? Wonka is the opposite of this where Roald Dahl Roald Dahl was angry 
at Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka because he thought he was too nice, believe it or not. Mm, and, wow. And Timothy Chalamet's version is like as Paddington as possible. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Grimdark and then there's Wonka. And then Those there's the Wonka. two approaches. That's yeah. The, that's, yeah, that's the spectrum that we're working on here. Got it. Here's the thing about Pokemon Unbound. I'm going to heap a lot of praise on this game. It does have a very dark story. <laughs> like it, it opens with you being sorry. I was going to say it opens with you being kidnapped, which is true. When you when you have control of the player, you are like in like a shipping container with a bunch of other people that you need to escape from, which is like rough. But if you would, if you'd allow me, I would like to read to you the opening cutscene. OK. Long ago, I'm, I'm reading just to be clear, I'm reading this from the the MiU Mini Plus where I'm playing mm. this. It, it is a Game Boy Advance game. I didn't even mention that. You can like put it on a Game Boy Advance if you want to. All right. Here it is. Long ago, the Boreas region was engulfed by a great war with a foreign land. It was a brutal war, one which lasted many years. During that time, the enemy managed to seize the upper hand. On the brink of defeat, the Borean king summoned a dark force to help turn the tides of battle. There's also a little cutscene here where you can see Pokemon fighting. I'll show it to you. Oh, wow. There it is. They're really going at it. They're yeah. really going at it. The foreign army's advantage was lost almost instantly. As soon as it entered the battlefield, the dark force used its power to create portals and transport the invading army back home. With the foreign army gone, the war seemed at an end for Boreas. However, their king, overcome by his lust for power, sent the Borean army through the portals as well. <gasps> the war continued to rage in the foreign land for several years. Many more men and Pokemon were conscripted to fight and inevitably met their end on the battlefield. One such Pokemon having been a dear friend of the enemy king, overcome with grief, the king built a device to restore its life, granting himself immortality in the process. But this traumatic event left him scarred and filled with anger. Unable to forgive the world that had hurt his precious Pokemon, he turned his machine into a giant weapon. The ultimate weapon. The king became a bringer of destruction that ended the war. With the war over, what little remained of the Borean army returned home. The king's Pokemon left him, and the battlefield became silent. Yet peace was still to come. Enraged over the fruitless war fought, survivors of the war wished for ample compensation from the Borean king. When he had nothing to offer them, they began to manipulate the dark force to attack the Borean kingdom in an attempted coup. In an effort to stop the madness, the Borean king gathered the legendary Pokemon. Articuno, Zapdos, <laughs> okay, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> Moltres. <laughs> Using the power of the three birds, a prison was created for the dark forest, sealing its power. It became a shadow of its former self. Stripped of its power, it was taken in by the king and supervised by his progeny. Until this very day. And that's it. That's how the game opens. How much of that? How much of that seeped into your head? How much of that do you remember? I uh, all of it. I have two thoughts. <laughs> okay. 
Hit me. One is I don't hate it. In fact, it kind of reminds me of how a lot of Fire Emblem games open. Like that's, that's true. Yeah. It feels like a very Path of Radiance uh, map narration. Yeah. It's like, I can see what they're going for. I was prepared for it being like, fuck you, Pikachu said, smoking. <laughs> fuck like, you, that's Pikachu, what I was, for the N64. Yeah, fuck, fuck you, Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> we can't, they can't have that be the episode title. We'll get sued. Um, I... So I don't hate it. I, I get what they're going for. It feels very like uh, t- uh, Tactics Ogre or Fire Emblem. Yes. And I feel like that's, if I had to make a guess, that's kind of what a lot of like ROM hack Pokemon designers, like they want to elevate it to that kind of standard of mm-hmm. turn-based combat or, or tactics. Yes. Uh, my other thought was that this feels like the novels Lieutenant Surge writes in his gym when he's not fighting <laughs> about the war he may or may not have fought in. Like, I yes. just think, I think Lieutenant Surge is the Tom Clancy of <laughs> Kanto. And he's just like typing up this stuff or he's like, right. You didn't check his, his like North's corner. It was ambushed by Articuno. <laughs> so I'm kind of in, like, I, I know that was supposed to be a bit, but I'm like kind of sold. So I'm curious to hear. That's what interesting. In I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Cause I, I've read that and I was like, sure. If I look, if I read that on my own, I would have felt confused and afraid, but hearing <laughs> it from you, I was like, okay, I'll bite. Like, what is this? That's you fun. know? Yeah. No, because yeah. I, I was just like, I knew that the next thing that was going to happen was a professor was going to be like, choose your Pokemon and go on an adventure. You're 11, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which like is not not what happens. So, I mean, what what, what happens after that is like you wake up in this shipping container. It turns out there's like an, (laughs) an evil, you know, another like evil team rocket kind of team. And what they're trying to do is just like find the three legendary birds again is it like a medieval setting or is it no. modern day no it, oh, okay. it feels it feels a lot like all the other pokemon games in terms okay, of the i'm region out, that I'm out. i feel like if, I would, if they really committed to the fire emblem <laughs> then i would have been more interested because that's what pokemon conquest is like i yes. actually think pokemon conquest opens in a not too dissimilar way yeah, yeah you're right uh, if i'm remembering correctly where it's like jigglypuff you're all we have give it your all <laughs> Defend the town from the evil army. Sing into um, this bullhorn. Put them all to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> we'll amplify you as, as best we can. Um, yeah, so uh, you you end up uh, choosing a Pokemon in the shipping container, escaping with somebody else, making your way back to your hometown, uh, which is like this kind of like icy town. Uh, and you meet up with a professor and you tell, you tell the professor everything that's going on. And he's like, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to run an errand for me real quick. I need you to like go down to this other town tell my friend what's going on here and then the two of us can figure out what to do after that so that's the first like three hours of the game just about and in those three hours i had completely forgotten about that entire opening (laughs) you know that whole cutscene and everything i was just like whatever i'm like in a new pokemon game now because this game just like throws quality of life stuff at you and has so many little tiny improvements that i think you in particular Mm -hmm. would really love and i'm like absolutely over the moon about i mean just stuff as easy as like the game asks you when you start, they're like, how much do you like puzzles? Yes or no. <laughs> we can just get rid of the puzzles if you're uninterested. It also is like, how well do you know the type matchups? Like, are you like, Interesting. All, are you like all in on them or do you like need some help with them? And based on that, they'll actually scale the difficulty of the game based on how you answer all of that stuff. You know, what's weird. You know what series does a similar thing and you would never guess which one is Silent Hill. 
Silent Hill, <laughs> a lot of them open with like you can change the puzzle difficulty and the combat difficulty separately. Cool. So you can make it like way more like the combat's a breeze, but the puzzles are really intense or vice versa. Yeah, I um, love that. Which I, I think I think having difficulty options kind of I mean, it depends on the game you're making. But I think for Pokemon, especially where there is such a huge like there's a huge fan base and also like very specific pockets within that fan base of what you want from the series. Yeah. I think having that flexibility is a great idea. It's really nice. Um, yeah. It, it's really helpful for this game in particular. What they also do is in combat. So they, they've taken a lot of the interface from like way later in, in the Pokemon series. So they have stuff that's like, I, I think, I think they say it's like a gen five. So like some of the DS stuff, like the interfaces from that. So when you're fighting against Pokemon, it'll like show you what their types are. When you hover over your different moves, it'll tell you how effective or not they are. Or if you have like, a same type bonus when you're using those moves on other on other Pokemon and stuff, which is really helpful and really great. And just like those little quality of life things, I think are awesome. But on top of that, I just think it's impressive that they made this new region that does feel like real and good and feels like it is kind of in line with a lot of the other ones. They've also added like side quests, which I think is amazing, which I'm like all about and just kind of surprised that I've never seen in a mainline Pokemon game to this level where like you will go talk to a person and they'll be like, hey, you know, it, we've had versions of that where someone will be like, hey, can you trade me, you know, X Pokemon for this Pokemon sure. and things like that. But these are way more in depth where it'll be like, hey, I need you to, uh, you know, go here, get this item and bring it back to me. Or like, hey, can you run to the store and grab this and give it back? Or I even did one uh, recently that was like this old man who was talking about like the importance of writing your memories down. And the side quest ended up being save 100 times and then come back to me and I'll give you a reward. That rocks. Which that kind so of reminds funny. me of uh, Arceus, I think, was the first one, if I'm remembering correctly, that had side quests like that yeah where there was like you know catch me this pokemon and you can watch it evolve over time right yeah uh, and i think that that worked especially with that open structure yeah yeah it that it adds to a lot of world building i think and i think it just yeah. it, it, it allows for a lot more of of like a player understanding of the space in, in a lot of ways especially considering a lot of them are you know i think i think there are people who could disparage this and and for me, it really works where I am spending a lot of time running around and backtracking. So I feel like I'm getting a really intimate knowledge of the spaces by needing to go through these side quests, because every single time I find one, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's side quests in this game and I want to do it immediately. There's some that you definitely cannot like there's there's one that I think was just called like the oh, my God, what was it? I think it was just called like basic reading and comprehension. And it just meant that you needed to go read all the trainer tip signs that were in the world and come back to them, which is like one I'm going to have to do over the course of the entire lifespan of the game. But they just have all all of these little things that I think really kind of add up and, and make the game feel like new and fresh and interesting. Even just the fact that the UI feels completely different and is pulled more from the DS games and from the Game Boy Advance games is really nice. Um, it still has the day night cycle, which is cool, considering mm. a lot of the, the um, Game Boy Advance era stuff didn't really have that. So it has like an internal clock. It uses the internal clock of whatever you're playing on um, to, to keep that going, which I think is great. There's just like a lot going for it. And when you make your way through this entire like opening section where you need to go from the professor down to this other area, there's like a couple things that pop up here and there in terms of like the story, which I won't really get into because you should just play it for yourself. But when you go through this big, like kind of icy cavern to make your way to the first town, what you're greeted by are just some other amazing quality of life things. Like there's a Chansey halfway through this ice cave who, if you talk to the Chansey, they will just heal you, which is great. When you make it out of this cave, there is like what's called like a challenge road, which is very similar to that area in, 
Cerulean City where you make your way up to Bill. That's like that bridge that you can cross. Where oh, you just, Nugget Bridge. Yeah, yeah. Where you just like yeah. fight trainers one after another. And you can do that. You can go through and fight all the trainers one by one by one. And there's a character who's at the entrance of that cave who will heal you immediately if you want to. But she's also like, there's a psychic over here who's practicing his ability to teleport. And if you want, he can just teleport you to the next town. You don't even have to worry about this, which is just another thing that's like giving players the option to either engage with or not engage with different parts of the game, depending on what they're interested in, which is just like such a nice thing to have. Um, And I, I find that Pokemon Unbound continues to like pinprick those little moments where you might be frustrated or might feel like you're doing something you don't want to be doing by just giving you an out at every moment if they want to, which I think really eases the flow of like getting into it. I've been doing everything just because I'm so overwhelmed by how much I like this. But when you make your way to the first town, it does a thing that I always wish other Pokemon games did where you make your way over to the place that you're supposed to go. You're talking to the professor's friend or you're supposed to talk to the professor's friend and there's a person outside who's like, hey, you can't come in here. My dad's asleep. Just like come back later. And the only other thing there is left to do in that town is fight the first gym. So it's like, okay, cool. I'll go fight the first gym. You go into the gym and the gym is completely filled with what they say is fog, but it's definitely smoke. And the whole gym is filled with stoners and it's, (laughs) Oh my God. And they're so they, they use literally the, like the fog weather condition in battle. So you like, you can't attack the enemy character and they can't attack you. Really? You have like a really low percentage chance of hitting. So you need to bring Pokemon that are able to like take the fog away, like to change the weather condition in battle, which is such like, even though it's very silly to be like, Oh dude, they smoke weed. Isn't that funny? I think it's actually really interesting to send a gym not around a tight matchup but instead around a weather condition and engage with those elements of the battle system that generally are like things that people just ignore or don't even think about at all yeah that that's the thing about pokemon that especially the more modern entries that i struggle with one i just have to say like this gym's theme of stoners is way more of what i expected yes when he said this is kind of dark and edgy so i just had to laugh at that but i agree i think honestly Jim's moving away from just being a singular type feels like pretty low hanging fruit for the series. Like I think Pokemon is plagued by everyone saying that they have the idea that will make the series better or fix it. But like, I think we're all a little bit sick of like, okay, it's a water gym. I got to go catch the electric sheep and, uh, (laughs) and win. And like, they do kind of address that in some games. Like I think, uh, in Pokemon sword and shield, most visibly like with the Gigantamax transformations, they will throw you off a little bit when it's like, Oh, the fire guy has like a fire and bug type transformation. So, you know, he might have an edge there. I I forgot what it was, but something like that. But I I think like having themes or being built around a mechanic is way more interesting. And, And I think the thing I struggle with is like, I feel like when you're playing the core game, it's, you know, fairly basic. It's Pokemon is made for a younger audience. It's totally fine. Yeah. But if you want to engage with a competitive play online, you have to like turn it into calculus. <laughs> There's no middle ground. It's either yeah. catch the electric sheep for the water gym or like spend your weekend breeding impidimps for the perfect IVs. <laughs> and like, it's like, I don't want to do either of these things. I want like a fun challenge, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it sounds like these gyms are providing that. It does. That, that seems, uh, you know, I, I've only gone against the first gym leader so far so i can't speak to the rest of the game but based on the way that people talk about this game it sounds like everybody really 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 loves it and i think it does keep up that that like interest level at least so i was really impressed by that first gym and when you go fight that first gym after that you go back to the house that you were supposed to go to the person's like okay you can come in and talk to this guy you talk to the guy he brings the professor in the two of them have a conversation and they're like 
all right, great job. Go home. You're done. Like, I asked you to do one thing. You don't need to do anything else. Like, you just got a Pokemon, like, literally three hours ago. It doesn't make sense for you to go on this big world-spanning quest. You're not going to beat the evil villains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the other guy that you're talking to is like, you know, I get where you're coming from, but they did go up and beat the first gym. They might as well, like, go take on the gym challenge if they want to help out with this other thing alongside that. Like, that'd be cool, too, I guess, Um, which I really love that, like, stepping back and being like, you really aren't the chosen one at all. In fact, it's really implied that this person's son is actually maybe the chosen one and is like Mm. the person who's probably going to save the world. And you might just be along for the ride in some ways. You do have like a separate rival outside of that as well. But I just appreciate, like, I think Pokemon has such a tendency of being like, you're the most special little kid ever. And you are you. You as an 11 year old are going to like unseat the mafia from its throne. Yeah, you're going to you're going to destroy organized crime and catch the god of time. Yes. Before you finish the gym. Down right. Challenge. Yes. <laughs> like you do that and then you fight the ground type gym leader. Yeah. For some reason. <laughs> And, and this game, I think, taking a step back and being like, that's absurd. It just makes more sense for you to be like another person just trying this along the way. And you just like happen to bump into this over and over again, I think is decidedly more interesting to me as somebody who's played a lot of these games in the past. Yeah, and that's why you and I love Gen 2 so much, because yes. that feels the closest to just existing in the world of Pokemon. You yeah, know, it has like we compared it to Animal Crossing in large part due to the day and night cycle and like being more directly tied to the time of day that you're playing it. But even just the way that the story plays out, like Team Rocket's not really a threat. They're just sort of rebuilding. Like you do fight them again, but it's sort of by circumstance. Yeah. And it feels more about the setting and about the day-to-day aspect of it. And then when there are the legendaries, they really do feel like they're mythical beings. Yes. You know, we talk all the time about like having to actually track the dogs and like find them. And the big difference, I think, between that and what we now have in the current iteration of Pokemon games every time they come out, which is like, here's the legendary. They're on the box. You're going to meet them in the story and they're important to the story. And you're going to get them no matter what. Yeah, exactly. Instead of specifically being like, no, 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 they are legendaries and you need to go seek them out on your own and you need to like muster up the willpower to to tame them yourself. Like they're not yeah. they're not story critical, but you will hear about them a lot and it will pique your interest and you'll have an idea of where to go. Honestly, Gen Gen 1's handling of Mewtwo, I think, is the gold standard there. Mm. Where it's like you you see Cinnabar Island, like you don't have to go there. Yeah. But if you do, you'll see documentation about like yes. these attempts to clone Mew. And it's really just there after you've already beaten the game it, and you really have to seek it out. You have to remember that you saw that entrance to the cave while you were going up that bridge, yeah. go back there and, and, and get to the end of the cave. And it, it actually feels a little scary. You know, even though Mewtwo is like a known figure of pop culture. Now I have an amiibo, <laughs> like there is something so special and mysterious about that moment. Yeah. At the, at the, at the time it was terrifying. Yeah. At the time for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I I think this is also I don't think this is you and I coming from the perspective of like, weren't things so much fucking better when we were kids, dude? Like, wasn't Pokemon so great in the first couple generations? But there is there is like a marked difference in the way these games play and the way in which you interact with them at this point. And I think 
Pokemon Unbound, at least in the in the amount of time that I put into it so far, feels like it gets that and modernizes it simultaneously, which I think is really special. It's it's one of the reasons I brought Pokemon Crystal Clear up years ago when we talked about that was because it was like, here is a game set in the Game Boy Color era that feels like it's pulling from a lot of what like modern Pokemon is trying to do and not really landing all the time. And Pokemon Unbound is like a complete ground up new game that I think is doing a lot of the things that you and I and a lot of people wish they would be doing while still retaining a lot of I think what makes Pokemon like friendly and approachable to kids like the game is still written very fun like I I think the writing is good and funny even though that like it opens with you know a big endless war etc etc when you're actually playing the game like all the trainer barks are very funny there are a lot of like the trainer tip signs and a lot of people in the first couple towns who will like tell you how to play Pokemon like it is still built to be anyone's first Pokemon game as they all should be because they all are for a huge portion of the audience yeah but Pokemon I, I think it's interesting to play a game that is made by fans of the series that is also trying to do that despite technically you know i mean it's it's a thing that like they can't sell it's not i i guess like official in any capacity it is an unofficial fan version of a pokemon game that is trying to retain everything that makes those games great while also putting its own spin on it and i think it works in a lot of ways like adding all that quality of life stuff i think having the day and night cycle also brings it closer to what you and i really loved about pokemon crystal they also have daily events i think there are 365 days of events programmed into the game so like you can go and do a bunch of like weird stuff i haven't seen any of them yet because i'm too early in the game i think at this point but even outside of that i just think the towns are really great like the first one you get to after your opening town which is as i mentioned like in the mountains in like a snowy kind of mountain peak the first one you go to is like an archipelago that's like really cool and interesting right when you leave that is you know the the classic like first forest that you have to go through but instead of just being filled with bugs it's filled with ghosts they're like hey this is a haunted forest which is like a really fun little spin on that idea Yeah, yeah um and i think all of the trainers that i've gone up against not all but a big chunk of them have been legitimately challenging a lot of them like i have been team wiped by trainers more in this than i ever have in any other pokemon game already um just because you really need to be considering tight matchups and you need to be considering you know like i I don't just more than i've ever had to consider in a pokemon game especially this early on which i think is having me more engaged than i have been in a long time it just feels like this is this is closer to what I've wanted from Pokemon for years and years and years. And I think going back and playing it on the Game Boy Advance specifically is really interesting. Being like all of this could have been accomplished in this era. Yeah, and I, I think there's been a huge shift in the way, game. you know, not to get into this conversation for the millionth time on the show, but like I think there's been a huge shift in like Game Freak needing to hit this constant schedule that they're hitting and, you know, games not coming out to the best of, I think, their ability in a lot of cases. You and I have talked about this in the past, but like one of the things I spent a lot of time doing on my on my break was playing a lot of Game Boy and Game Boy Color games. And it's amazing the discrepancy between the quality level and the like the technological feat of a lot of games for the Game Boy and Game Boy Color and what Game Freak was able to do with Pokemon Red and Blue and and yellow and gold silver and crystal like those games are so far ahead of their time yeah. and are pushing we talk those about this a lot on the uh on the red and blue bonus we do which is one of my favorite episodes we've done yeah. and like it really is like i think the ds pokemon games are great and in many ways i feel like black and white are specifically doing what you're saying unbound is doing with like this sort of uh heightened challenge and focus on battles and yeah. type matchup i mean i think famously black and white begins the first gym chooses the type that's strong against you yes so that first gym is adapting to what you chose which i always loved 
But the DS era of Pokemon is where the turn begins, where like, you know, first three generations, those games are, like you said, pushing the hardware to its absolute limit. The thing about Pokemon Red and Blue is like by today's standards, it's super archaic, to be clear. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that game holds up in a lot of ways, but it would not be the game I would tell most people to play at this point in time. Right. You know, like, I think if you are interested in game history and if you're a big Pokemon fan, you haven't. Yeah, you should. Because even if you are interested in playing those games, I would recommend like Fire Red or Leaf Green or maybe Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. Yeah, exactly. And I think most people people would would agree with you but the thing about pokemon red and blue is like if you look at other game boy games yes it is night and day compared to like even the mario like super mario land might as well be like on those weird like tiger <laughs> electronic things yeah the mcdonald's chicken nugget retro yeah. handheld that they put out in china yeah exactly but yeah the ds era is where i think they started to you know the first three generations of pokemon i think the style is informed by limitation and then once the ds comes around the style sticks to what was informed by the previous limitation. Yes. So like while they're doing some stuff with the 3d buildings and all of that, like it, when you play the DS Pokemon games, like especially when you play other DS RPGs, I think, you know, the m- closest example would be like the dragon quest monsters games on yeah. DS. It is night and day in, in the other way of it's like what those yeah. games are accomplishing graphically. Yeah. But one, one of the other things that I think is worth mentioning. So it's like they were pushing the hardware, but they were also pushing mechanically what was possible in a lot of those yeah, games. Like totally. a, lo- a lot of the games on those early Nintendo handhelds were like pretty pared down in terms of what they were trying to do. Even the RPGs were like pretty threadbare, I think, in a lot of cases. But those games are so mechanically dense. I mean, there's a reason that they haven't changed the like core fundamentals of how battling works in a lot of ways. You know, they've added different types and different moves and different kinds of things. But like for the most part, it, it feels markedly similar. Like if you played a if you played the newest Pokemon game, you could go back and play Red and Blue and like still have a good handle on what's going on. Um, and vice versa, I think. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to be playing a fan made game for the Game Boy Advance that feels like it's pushing the envelope not just of the game boy advance but like pushing the envelope of what's mechanically possible in the game boy advance also and and feels like it's doing even more for in my in my opinion and and for my taste in particular pushing like what i would want out of a pokemon game more so than like the fully open world experience that we had with with Scarlet and Violet, which are like games that I enjoy. We've talked about them a lot, have some issues with them. But I feel like when I think about like the most recent, most fun Pokemon games I've played, the ones that come to mind now are Unbound and Arceus. Arceus being mm-hmm. like a completely new idea for what a mainline Pokemon game can be, quote unquote mainline and Unbound feeling like it's answering a lot of the the questions and a lot of the the pleas of a lot of people out in the world in terms of what they would want from a game like this. I, ju- I just think it's remarkable and it's like a huge team effort. I mean, there's like a bunch of composers. I think they made like 100 to 200 songs for the game. Wow, that's there's amazing. Like, there's like a bunch of mini games. There's apparently a really, really, really in-depth post game also that will allow you to just like play the game for like hundreds of hours after you're done with the main story. I just think it's really remarkable. I I, I, I love it a lot. It's great on the MiU Mini Plus. Um, I, I haven't played it as much as I would like to, although now that I'm home, I find that I'm playing it a lot more and I will probably bring it up again as I get further into it if, if it continues to like hit this level 
of quality. Um, but I think you would like it a lot. I think you would yeah. really, really enjoy it. I'll definitely check it out. I mean, especially cause like listeners have pointed out, like, I think, uh, we love Pokemon and I think the first couple seasons of our show are probably like 70% Pokemon related. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I don't, I haven't like fallen out of the series. I just think I got a little burnt out at a certain point. I think yeah. like, you know, once sword and shield came out, we did get a new Pokemon game. Every, I mean, actually it was let's go Pikachu and Eevee. And then Sword and Shield, and then what? Arceus is two years later. But also, Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl came out in that yes. span. And and I didn't really love that one to be honest. Like I really wanted to, but it just didn't really work for me. So I'm just like, at the same time though, I'm really curious what's next for Pokemon. And I know a lot of people who love Scarlet and Violet despite its you know production yeah. flaws. So I'm just like, it feels like we're at this exciting time where, you know, when we talk about games that are part of a long running series, I feel like there is always that ebb and flow. Like there's the Capcom doldrums and now we're in the Capcom golden age. Yeah. I'm wondering if we're about to hit that like Pokemon comeback, you know, because mm. it feels like Scarlet and Violet did actually kind of give people what they wanted. It was just a rushed production. Yeah. I'm hoping that they took the notes and that Game Freak will be given the time and resources to make the game they want to make yeah yeah i totally agree and and as we, as we've said in previous episodes also like if the next switch comes out and just has like blanket across the board power improvements to sure. every single game that you play on it there's a world in which you just turn on pokemon scarlet and violet and it runs perfectly on the next switch which yeah. would be like a dream i would love to go back and play that game and play all the dlc and all that kind of stuff absolutely but hearing about Unbound, it makes me wonder, and I think we've theorized this before, but like, is the future of Pokemon going to be what they sort of do with Zelda, where we get the mainline 3D open world ones, but every now and then we get the like classic style? It kind of feels that like they were doing that when Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl came out alongside Arceus. Yeah. I'm wondering if they're going to do another try at that. I, I don't necessarily need it to be a remake. I just... I think there is. Oh my God. How cool would it be if they did that? That's what I mean. It's like yeah. oh the fact God. that Unbound exists and you're bringing it up with such enthusiasm means there is somehow still more to do in the 2D style. Yes. And I think we're at the frontier of the open world style. So I think ideally they can both continue, you know, do the Square Enix thing and release FF16 and Octopath, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's, totally. that's what I would love to see. Yeah. Me too. Oh my God. That'd be so fun. Yeah. Yeah. I feel. Yeah. I want it all, oh, Brendan. I also want it all. And considering again as we said a billion times it's the biggest intellectual property on the planet yeah. <laughs> they definitely have the money to make that happen that's the thing it's like normally i try to really like take a step back and be like what we want is almost always probably impossible <laughs> and in the case of pokemon it's like maybe actually not because yeah. they have the resources yeah, yeah it's like it's like one of like two cases yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I feel like just like sales of Snorlax alone are probably like worth more than some states funding. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> the GDP of Snorlax. <laughs> that, that's a title. Hey, Pokemon Unbound. I can't tell you where to get it really, but just Google. Just go to Google. You'll you'll find a way. I love it. I'm playing it on the Mii Mini Plus. It's great. Any Game Boy Advance emulator will play it. And if you are lucky enough to have some physical hardware with like a way of putting games onto it, uh, it'll also play there, which is amazing. So go check it out. It's great. And go play other ROM hacks for Pokemon because there's a whole bunch out there and they're all they're all cool. I'm also interested in learning more about like the sort of modern Game Boy Advance games. Like we had a uh, Good Boy Galaxy mm -hmm. recently. I, I would love to see more of that world as well. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a there's a lot of cool stuff going on there. I've been I've been looking yeah. into um, GB Studio a lot, which is specifically yeah. for like Game Boy and Game Boy Color, which is like a really kind of I don't want to say rudimentary, but it's like a pretty low stakes 
game development tool. And I'm wondering, like, are we going to get to the era where somebody's making like a GBA studio or something like that? As mm. people continue to make more and more Game Boy Advance games, it feels like that would be a really, a really well-loved tool. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I would love to mess around with that myself, to be honest. Yeah. Cool. I want to make that Mass Effect tactics game that was teased in that animation. <laughs> or I want someone else to make it too. Either way. But yeah, why don't we take a break? I actually, the next game I have is is perfectly on topic for what we've set up here so awesome. i'm very excited for that cool uh see you soon bye-bye brendan hello the game i have here is not for the game boy or game boy Advance, but it definitely has a game boy aesthetic uh, it's called tiny folks and it was developed by pierre van der mason and uh, i just picked it up on steam there was recently of course a winter steam sale and even though my backlog is oh, forever yeah. growing i got like Close to a dozen games for way... I mean, it, they were all heavily discounted, but I ended up just spending what I would normally spend on, like, one new game. Yeah. That's how they get you. <laughs> but uh, one of them was Tiny Folks, which was a game that came out, I believe, last year. Maybe the year before. Um, it's for, like, less than $5. I think you can get it on a number of different platforms. Yeah, it looks like it's available on Android, which is maybe where I'll get it. Yeah. Um, so, basically, the, the pitch for this game... I've seen a lot of people compare it to Darkest Dungeon. That's a pretty apt comparison. I would say it's like, what if Darkest Dungeon was for the Game Boy and was much sillier and faster? And you could beat it in two hours. Yeah. So, essentially, the beginning is, like, you choose whether or not uh, you're a king or queen. And there's this, like, dramatic Game Boy cutscene. Actually, really impressive, like, pixel art. Where there's this evil sorcerer that has dethroned the king or queen and plummeted the world into this, like, desperate state where the world will end in, I think, 45 days. Mm. Um, but the king or queen, your player character, survives. And you find, like, a modest village... And you start recruiting tiny folks to help you take your kingdom back and save the world. So the way it works is like it's half a resource management game and half turn-based combat. So the planning phase, you'll be in your town and uh, kind of like Darkest Dungeon, every day in the game's like daily schedule, there are people you can recruit. So sometimes they'll just be farmers and you can recruit them for free and they have no class. But you start off with a couple buildings in your town where you can train them to become warriors. Mm. And then, you know, it will take a day for them to learn that. And then whenever you're ready, you can go and adventure in one of the levels that's on the map. And once you select a level, you'll see how many like battles you have to do before the boss. And there's a bit of a risk reward thing where every time you win a battle, you get more gold and more resources, but you can't like heal or restock. So sometimes you'll do a couple battles and then want to go back to your town but then you're also spending more time so there's always that kind of like thought process going on when you're in a level and once you get to the boss you can't go back so like if you commit to the boss fight you're trying to beat the level in full and you'll get a much larger reward um and then of course you can go back to town upgrade your buildings so they have more options that itself is a very satisfying and familiar loop I mean, the thing that makes this game feel very special, other than it's like really cool Game Boy minimalist art style, the music is incredible. It's got a really good upbeat chiptune soundtrack that really adds to the Game Boy feeling, but makes it feel very modern. And also kind of adds to the sense of like the pacing of it. You know, I think our, our uh, I forgot where he said it, but our friend Chase, who's host of Video Game Potimism, said about Baldur's Gate 3, like, I can't wait to see whoever makes the two hour long Baldur's Gate 3. Like, what does that look yes. like? And what does that mean? 
And this kind of feels like a proof of concept where you can take inspiration from a game like Darkest Dungeon that is known for being harrowing to the point of almost becoming camp mm-hmm. and is this sort of never ending journey that's like very high stakes. It, it has the same kind of emotional masochism that like a Nuzlocke run would have or, or Fire Emblem can have with the permadeath. But so what have you made that like very quick very arcadey, very like minimalist in some ways. And it didn't have any of that kind of emotional side, which not to say that that's better. It's just different. It's like a very different approach at a similar idea. And I think it's a really good proof of concept. Yeah. Cause that, that's gonna, that could be a thing that will turn people off from playing darkest dungeon ever Totally. You know, in, in the same way, like the art style of binding of Isaac, despite that being maybe one of the best roguelites ever made. Like, yeah. That'll prevent people from ever playing that game. I think in a similar sense, Darkest Dungeon being like, I don't want to watch a bunch of people lose their minds actually yeah. o- over the course of like 50 hours. It's like you might find the central loop of it mechanically attractive, but not like everything else about it. And this yeah. is this is a really interesting. Like we talk a lot about inspiration on the show and like the line between, you know, homage and potentially like kind of ripping theft. off something. Yeah. <laughs> and theft, yeah. And this is such an interesting way to to see inspiration manifest. Where it's like, I wouldn't otherwise ever compare the two games other than the fact that they have a similar loop, you know, which is really cool. The other aspect of this game that I really like that I kind of wish I felt more of an impact from, but it's still a really cool thing, especially given how short it is. And I think it adds to the replay value of it is that when you start to class the tiny folk you recruit, you can, you know, send them to the barracks to make them a warrior or you can send them to a temple to make them a priest or a mage or whatever. But you can level them up twice so you can have them like double down as a warrior and become like an ultra powerful battler. Or you can have them like, what if I had them learn one level in warrior and one level in rogue? Like, mm. what does that make them? And there are so many combinations of classes. So like you can be really creative with how you class everyone in kind of an octopath way or a really default way. The thing about it is like, I don't know if the battle system is is rich enough to really feel that like payoff. Uh, like I, ha- yeah. I haven't felt like, ah, thank God I made a saint, you know, <laughs> but it is it is fun just to see how many combinations the game has accounted for. Yeah. And again, I think the fact that it's like you can beat it in two hours, it makes it feel like, oh, maybe I'll try again and see if like different combinations feel better or whatever. Um, I would love to see like a follow up to this that like, I think you can have it still be the same length and maybe have the options feel a little bit more meaningful. But as it stands, it's a really great game for the price and, you know, for its availability. I think it's kind of an easy recommendation. So I had a great time with it. I uh, I'm definitely going to play so much of this game. (laughs) (laughs) I think you'll love it, especially the music. I think you'll have a great time with it. Yeah, it's so it's available on Android, which I think is great for me. It's not available on iOS, which I, I, I wish it was, but it is also available on Mac. Uh, oh, cool. Perfect. It's yeah. great. I'm going to play. I'm going to play so much of this. This is this is an amazing looking game. And as you said, it's it's either five dollars on Android or four dollars on Steam. Yeah, I think you'll be happy you checked it out. I, I've yeah. been having a great time with it. That's tiny folks. Another game that I've been playing that I got on that same Steam sale that is slightly cursed, but is a formative childhood memory slash game of mine is Majesty the fantasy kingdom simulator. Do you know anything about this? Have I ever even mentioned this to you? No, no, I've never even heard of this. I'm, lo- I'm looking at it right now though. And boy, what great box art this is. Yeah. So the fantasy kingdom sim, I should say. Yeah. The, the box art is like, it looks like Gale's hands. Cause he has that kind of mage, mage <laughs> pajama like sleeves. Hands. Yeah. Which is interesting <laughs> foreshadowing. Uh, but it's these human hands holding, a little kingdom within it. It looks like this is published by Hasbro. 
and developed by Cyberlore Studios and Herocraft Mobile. Maybe that's like for one of the ports. I'm not sure. Yeah. But regardless, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't really play on the PC much. Like I always gravitated towards consoles just because like the computer we had growing up wasn't very good. And I also had to share it with my whole family. So like eventually I had my time with like civilization and stuff. But at a young age, the games I played the most on PC and that I would play with my family were all the different type of Sim games. So like yeah. Sim City, Sim Tower, I was really into uh, Sim Safari, all that stuff. The Sims, of course. Yes. And that kind of led like liking those games. I always liked games where I could make my own society or civilization. I, I loved city builders as a kid. I still do. But that was like the genre for me for a while. That kind of led into getting into Starcraft and Warcraft. Oh, yeah. Which, like totally. I liked a lot, but I also I didn't even really want to play it competitively. I just liked making a base mm. like Usually what I would do is I would just do the cheats where you got like infinite resources and I would make like a giant, you know, sprawling Protoss base or whatever. Yeah. And just kind of watch it happen. I love that. Yeah. Were you were you like a tycoon kid also? Like, did you play like Rollercoaster Tycoon and yeah, those games? I, I loved Rollercoaster Tycoon. I also liked Sim Theme Park a lot. Mm. But uh, Majesty, weirdly, was the one that hit the hardest for me because it kind of was as if someone knew how I was playing StarCraft and Warcraft as like, I just want to watch and made that a game. <laughs> so here's what I'll say. I, I've revisited Majesty and it's it's fine. It's not an especially good game, uh, but I think it's a really interesting approach at this type of city builder slash RTS. And I, I'm curious to see if other games have kind of taken any inspiration from it, because the way it works is you play as a king. Uh, you have this narrator who sounds like Sounds like Sean Connery, but absolutely isn't Sean Connery. Kind of telling you like, we need more heroes, you know, stuff like that. And so like, you're usually given a goal in a level. So it might be like, we need to find these three magical items or we need to like make this much gold in this much amount of time. And so as the king, your options are you can essentially build buildings. You can eventually cast spells kind of like in a black and white type way where like you're sort of a god. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, all you can really do is build buildings and have those buildings build heroes or units. And all of those units you can't control. They all have their own scripted behavior. So like if you made a barracks that made a bunch of warriors they will never venture outside of the kingdom you've built, but they will always defend it. Mm. Um, meanwhile, if you make rogues, they are purely motivated by gold. So they won't do anything unless they're being attacked <laughs> or if you put up a reward flag on something. Amazing. They will even attack your castle if you put an attack flag on it and have a high enough reward. <laughs> Other characters like uh, rangers will just explore the whole map. And then eventually you can build these various temples to different gods. But mm. you can only I, I don't know. I don't remember the names, but like if you build like a temple to a certain god, you can only build a few other temples. So you kind of have to choose like which units do you want in your kingdom? In addition to that, there's also gnomes, elves and dwarves that can join your kingdom. but You can only have one. So gnomes like join right away and they build things very quickly, but they're otherwise kind of useless. Um, dwarves, you know, you can only make two, but they're much more efficient units. And elves have like a gambling hall in their building where you can just <laughs> make money from that. So it's like... The game kind of feels like it was made as like, here is sort of a Warcraft for an even younger audience. Like, I feel like mm. it, it feels like this is maybe meant to be someone's first 
Like it's not necessarily like it's like for kids, yeah. But just the delivery of it feels like this is maybe an entry point into like uh, an RTS style thing. Like even the idea that you don't control the units feels like they're sort of taking the pressure off. But I do think it's a really interesting way to build the game where there's almost this auto battler thing going on where like you can only infer like okay if I make these units they tend to do this. But otherwise, you have no control. Mm. I just think that, that idea is really interesting to me. Um, and I'm just wondering if there are other games that have taken a similar approach to RTS in the same way. Yeah, I feel well, Paradox Interactive has gone on to make so many other games that are like different different versions of fantasy sims, right? Like they did they did Age of Wonders, which you brought to the show uh a while ago, right? Uh, oh yeah, they did. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that adds up. Age of yeah. Wonders feels like modern day uh majesty for sure yeah uh yeah oh man they've done so much stuff i'm just looking at like the lineage of paradox interactive stuff right now but age of wonders feels like the closest that they've gotten to maybe something like that ever since then but it does remind me of another game that apparently they made which i can't believe which is called warlock masters of the arcane have you heard of this game no is this another childhood memory of yours uh no actually when i was in the discord the other day and i was i was trying to look for game boy games i just asked like what was everybody's favorite game boy stuff uh that they played on either that or the Game Boy Color. And a game that a couple people recommended was Warlock, which is an RTS on the Game Boy Color, uh, where you get to play as a bunch of different kings, all of whom have like weird powers. There's like a chicken king and a fire <laughs> king and like a money king and all these different ones. Um, and it's it's weird. I, I played it for like an hour-ish and, you know, it's fine. It's like amazing that they got an RTS to work on the Game Boy, but it looks like they also made it for PC. And I'm wondering how close that is as well. To Majesty. Uh, yeah, to something like Majesty. Yeah, but uh, what are you playing? Are you playing this on your Steam Deck? Yeah, it works great on Steam Deck. It's a little finicky with the mouse, but you can obviously customize the controls. Um, like yeah. I just use the touchpad to move around. And again, the fact that I don't have to control anybody is great. So I can just be like, this seems like a rogue kind of map and make a bunch of rogues. And just, I think what I really I respond that. to as a kid is there are a lot of like weird voices, which I imagine eight-year-old Steven is probably like repeating you know, ad nauseum yes, to everyone right. around him. But the minute I turned on the game and I heard someone go tax collector, I'm like, I'm back, baby. This yeah. is why I played this. That rocks. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. Like it's, it's pretty fun. Like it's not, it's, you know, sometimes we, we revisit games from our childhood and we're like, Oh, you know what? This is actually as good as I remember it. This is not one of those, but <laughs> I do think it has some really interesting ideas and it's cool to hear. They've gone on to make games like age of wonders, which for those who don't know what age of wonders is, it's essentially like, fantasy civilization and there are four x games at least age of wonders 4 is where you will play as a fantasy kingdom and that campaign the way that ends will inform the history of the map for mm. your next campaign which i haven't gotten that far in age of wonders 4 but that seems like such a cool idea for yeah. that style of game. i want to play that still I, I i really got to get into that it looks like yeah. majesty is also available on ipad uh, which oh really? Maybe it I'm... might be perfect for iPad. Honestly, yeah. They even even the like UI of the buttons feels tablet friendly, even though it was made like in the late nineties or yeah. early two thousands. Wow. Actually, it was two. It came out in two thousand, so I was ten. This is a ten year old memory. Wow, amazing. Yeah. There's also a sequel, but I've heard nothing about it, and I don't want to know. I just <laughs> I like this. I don't want this to become any realer than it already has become for me. <laughs> I, I might even uninstall it. Cause I'm like, I just wanted to know it existed. Like, do you have those games? Like, I'm not sure this is a dream I had or not, you know, 
And then you like look it up on YouTube. You're like, oh, okay, that did exist. That's basically what this majesty section is. Is like me verifying I'm not losing my mind. You're gonna love and this. It does exist. But I did just type in Majesty 2, the Fantasy Kingdom sim, and right after the Wikipedia page, the first result is a GameFAQs forum post that's titled I Don't Get It. <laughs> Which uh I'm now thinking you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no memory of writing it. I don't get it. Not, not I, don't, I don't understand. I do not get this guy. I yeah, will not purchase present it. Present tense, yeah, I don't get it permanently. <laughs> like, no, no, I understand it. I just don't receive yes, yes, it. Very, yeah. very easy to wrap my head around. It is a sequel to a perfect video game. <laughs> it's also, I think the thing about Majesty that's kind of funny is like, I've been playing so much Baldur's Gate 3 still. Yeah. And it's kind of hilarious to go from that, which is like, by all means, embracing the goofiness and fun of fantasy, but is telling like a very grounded and emotional story through its characters. Yeah. And then going to Majesty, which is just like pure camp. It's yeah. just like there's no emotion. There's no like thought beyond like we need heroes. You know, that's it. It just kind of whiplash to go from one to the other. I am going to get this on my iPad. I'm really excited. <laughs> I I think you might love it. Cause it has I think I also of, might love it. I mean, yeah, it has look, like that splash of idle gameness to it i have i have a similar track that i was kind of moving along the same time you were with all these sim games where i was playing yeah. like roller coaster tycoon but i was also really into age of empires and age of mythology and like the total war games and stuff like that um so i definitely i have i have that version of like the desire to play games like this in in the back of my head already uh and the idea of going back and playing one now sounds great and i i, I will do it Two great that. game recommendations between Tiny Folks and Majesty. I'm excited about both. <laughs> this is I, this is what I love about winter Steam sales. It's just you get stuff like this. Also, you know, just like, like winter for the Aether. Like this is yeah. Who oh, knows? Yeah. I just feel yeah. January until what is it? What's the first one? Is it Persona Three? Is the first one that comes out, or is it Final Fantasy Rebirth? I think it's Persona Three re Reload. Yeah. I always say Reloaded, but it's Reload. It's Reload. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think from now until that happens, chaos on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we might just there might just be an episode where we say chess for three hours straight into the <laughs> microphone. You know, night to D four. Yeah, ew, we just narrated Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> and it ends with just us going, it's only a game after all. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that's Majesty, the Fantasy Kingdom sim. Uh, it I love it. It does exist. It was not a dream. And I think it has some cool ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Hey, I couldn't say it any better. Let's take a break. <laughs> yeah, let's take a shower and then uh, go to the next section la -de -da -de -da -da. that's me taking a shower <laughs> bye, bye 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 brendan hello again hey how's it going once uh, once again hello we wanted to do a quick update section here these are games we brought up recently that we're still playing and and uh want to talk a bit more about yes. one of which is our recent favorite astral ascent yes this has really become my kind of go-to game uh it, i feel like you know i first played it we had just recorded game of the year tragically had just recorded game of the year <laughs> and you're like, we should play Astral Ascent co-op. And we yeah. did. And I had, a, I'm like, this is really good. Like I trusted your passion for it, but I was like, oh, this is really clicking for me way more than I anticipated. Mm -hmm. And it's the more I played of it, the more impressed I am by it. And the more I feel the need to champion it. Cause yeah. I, I just think it's, you know, it, I think there's 
there are a couple things that I, I think are preventing it from maybe being as immediately approachable as, say, Hades or uh, the other big roguelites. Hmm. I think namely the UI of it. And I think like it sounds nitpicky, but it's like in Astral Ascent, you know, kind of like Hades, like there's like rooms or like specific challenges you're going through. And then at the end, you choose which power up or spell you want and you head on to the next room. The fact that Astral Ascent makes you click like three buttons and scroll through a list to just choose the power. <laughs> yeah, I think might be enough to just confuse new players. But once you know that it really becomes less of a confuse, it becomes less of a confusing menu and more of just like limitless possibilities. Yeah, it's like an empowerment thing. It, it There's definitely a hurdle you have to get over to, to even understand what's going on. But when, as you're saying, once you get past that, it's like, oh, man, the build potential of every single run is like so so huge that it just becomes like kind of a joy i was talking to a friend of the show alana oaken about this and she was like i i love just like sitting back and like experiencing the excel spreadsheet of all of the different things that i can do and she was saying one of her favorite things to do specifically when playing multiplayer is like i just want to choose all the powers like we could do all the fighting and stuff but anytime there's a power choice like she's like i I want control over that for for both her and her partner brendan which i really love like that's such a fun experience being like i'm gonna micromanage all the little bits and bobs and then we can go in and do our fights and whatever but like that's the thing that she's most looking forward to yeah and i just think i would say so we talked about this game before already so i won't repeat too much of it but the the thing i would recommend doing if you're enjoying it at all try to beat taurus who's going to be the first boss no matter what i think once you beat the first boss the game really starts to blossom yes and i think it's much more quickly and in some ways abruptly than i think this slow burn of hades where hades you know starts you off with one weapon you know Mm. you have an idea like i think Whenever someone has just started Hades and, and an experienced player asks them, like, how are they looking so far? Like, oh, I just beat it for the second time. And it's like, oh, sweetie, like, yeah. you don't you don't <laughs> understand. You don't understand the scope of this. And then, you know, once you're on your 100th run or, or more than that, like you have all these options, and all these possibilities. I feel like with Astral Ascent, the minute you beat Taurus, when you start a new run, so many more unlockable things start appearing and yes. more options. And it becomes way more of a bullet hell than it feels like in the beginning where mm-hmm. like the game has a mechanic where the enemies will broadcast in red, like where they're about to strike. And I just fought Virgo, who I love. Virgo is such a cool boss. Um, I've only met two of the signs so far, Taurus and Virgo, but Virgo's fight was thrilling because like these patterns of red would appear on the screen. Like, oh, these are pretty. Then I'm like, oh, those are all her attacks. I have (laughs) one area that I can get to that I'll be okay. And I think the biggest mechanic to understand, I'm I'm by no means a pro. For me, at least, to at least beat Taurus and to get to where I am in the game, the biggest thing to unlock is remembering that one time they told you that when you're dashing, you're invulnerable. Yeah. Once you recognize how powerful the dash is in avoiding enemy attacks, all the boss start to really up the difficulty of where they're attacking (laughs) and it becomes this thrilling arcadey like yelling at the screen experience in a way that I think the game like Hades can feel like let's turn your brain off and just relax and hear the whimsical music and the pretty colors but then when it's a boss fight it becomes that like nail biting high risk, high reward experience that you kind of want from these types of games. Yeah, I'll, I'll also say just uh, giving advice if you're playing as Isla. So the dash, as you mentioned, very important. The other thing is that her uh, special ability, her character specific ability, which is like the the kind of like backstab like the teleport backstab also really crucial for getting out of really tight spots in a lot of boss fights in particular like Taurus is a great 
wanted to bring up where like he will stand at the opposite end of the map from where you are and do a big kind of swipe that will send like a blade of fire going down the entire path. You could just teleport behind him and just like hit him while he's doing that. Things like that. Like once you lock into those moments and get really good at them, it will unlock so much potential for you to get so much further in future runs. For me, when I when I started playing, I was like, I'm just going to play as Isla for a really long time, like until I feel like I have a pretty good handle on like the game, which I thought I was doing by the time I had beaten Taurus. And then, as you mentioned, as soon as you beat Taurus, who is going to be the first boss for everybody, the game just really, really, really gives you so many more options, not even in terms of like things you can do back at the hub, but like in terms of the amount of um, moves you can unlock on a per run basis, but also what rooms you can go to. There's so many different kinds of rooms that start yeah. to show up once you beat Taurus. Um, and there are other entire mechanics that I know you and I don't want to spoil for people um, that I think will drastically increase the amount of the emotional attachment, I'll say, that you have to some of the characters in the world. And I, I really think like, the game almost does itself a disservice by hiding so much of that in the beginning, but yeah. it is necessary to have that kind of difficult terrain to to traverse in the beginning. So you appreciate all that stuff when it pops up. So there's a there's definitely a give and a take there. But I think like once you get to that point, the game just feels like limitless and so much fun and so wonderful. I've, I've had some really, really extensive runs in that game that have ended in like tragedy. And I still come out the other end being like so thrilled and so stoked because just like in Hades, it's like, OK, cool. Spend all of my currency, unlock a whole bunch of stuff, talk to everybody in the hub. Let's go do it again. Yeah. Um, and I will say the the double of that or the thing or literally the double has been playing it multiplayer exhilarating and when i'm playing yes. multiplayer i've been playing as kieran who is the first character that you unlock you unlock him right at the beginning and he's just like a guy from street fighter straight up yeah and all of his attacks and all of his moves are really close they're like all close proximity you can get some attacks you know through some unlocks that will give you a little bit more range but for the most part he plays completely different than isla and the other two characters you can unlock also play completely different from those two um but kieran's special ability is straight up the deflect like the parry and and repost from um, Super Smash Brothers, like the Fire Emblem characters. Yeah. So you like hold a guard and if anybody hits you while you're holding that guard, you will just like kind of hit them back with that amount of power, which is amazing for bosses, but it's such a scary thing to try and pull off because even though all of these enemies are telegraphing their attacks, when those attacks are coming is a little bit of an unknown until you get a really good understanding of it. Like an enemy who like spins around, you know, with these like tendrils, you'll see the big red glow around them. That's like, hey, they're going to do an attack where they're going to spin around. But when that actually happens and when you would want to deflect is a completely different thing that you're going to have to figure out. And I, I've been really appreciating learning the ins and outs of the four characters that I know of. I, I think there's only four in the game. But uh, yeah, you're you're like maybe like one or two runs behind where I'm at in the game. And I think if you give it even more time, which I know you will, you're going to hit where I'm at and just be like super in love. It was, it is to be clear. This is the reason I brought the switch with me on the trip was like, I was going to play a bunch of Astral Ascent and then I ended up not, it's not because I don't like the game or whatever. It was just like my switch was big and the other things were not, uh, so, <laughs> which is really the answer. But yeah, this game rocks. This game is so good. You should play it. Dear listener. Yeah. I just, I just really wanted to, to bring it up again. Cause I just, I would love, I mean, it's doing well, but I would love to hear more about it from other people. I think it deserves to be one of the big ones. I think, I think so too. Yeah. I, yeah. I also just like, I love the art style. I love the music. Yeah. I love the voice act. There's like, there's so much to love in that game. Absolutely. 
Anyway, wanted to do another update. You've been continuing to play Golden Sun. Yes. Recent revival, 180 on Golden Sun. Yeah, the year of second chances continues yeah. with Golden Sun. Um, I have not put the game down. Is this is one that I'm pretty committed to seeing through. And and based on the walkthrough that I've been following, I'm like just over a third of the way through the game. I've seen some like major story stuff. I have unlocked a lot of uh the djinn, which are like the little uh like fantasy summons. magic creatures yeah. slash summons you can attach to each of your characters and weird weirdly similarly to what you were talking about with tiny folks one of the things that's really cool about golden sun that i didn't really even wrap my head around uh until i opened up the pdf of the prima strategy guide or whoever made the oh strategy guide it might be the brady strategy guide i forget which one brady I'm games is the way to go prima always lied prima <laughs> told you to to trade a, a Firo for a mewtwo oh bad um, oh no, yeah no, to, to use, use your master, your master ball, ball on a Firo. yeah yes no but i just remember i, I have distinct i remember everything uh <laughs> long term not short i have a terrible short-term memory i've got a great long-term memory i remember reading prima strategy guides and being like this is false i just did this this is not correct yes and brady games is always the way to go i still have my ff7 brady games strategy guide i will say the the strategy guide i've been reading is the prima strategy guide and i've been having some trouble with the prima strategy guide so now this all this all this is all clicking into place yeah, now they yeah. lie because what they'll do frequently in the in the Prima Strategy Guide for Golden Sun and Golden Sun: The Lost Age, it's it's both games in one book. It's it's over two hundred pages. It's a big thing. It's a big book. They will just have, and I'll show it to you, Stephen. They will have a really, really, really tiny map of where you need to go in a dungeon, with just like letters pointing at what door goes to what space, and the description of how to actually make it through that dungeon will be like eight pages later for some reason. Where yes. I'm like, I'm looking at this map. I'm like. Is this all I have to go on? And then I'll find out later that they actually explain how to get through that dungeon if you if you need the help. Uh, by the time I've already like bashed my head against it a billion times. Welcome to my 1998 hell. That is, <laughs> this is yes. all bring me back to the majesty era. But anyway, back to back to the connection to tiny folks. Yeah, I didn't realize that the different gin as you equip them to different characters, it changes every character's class, which is mm. amazing. Which is a thing I've never realize as i've played as, as i've gone to try and play golden sun in the past but what i love about it is like so as as you equip these different into the different characters they get different spells that they can use in and out of battle but on top of that they also are changing their classes which changes all of their stats and you can at any time swap them and just like try different things which i think is really really amazing it's octopath-esque yeah. it is octopath but just yeah. th this thought that like i don't even need to be in combat i don't need to go through like a bunch of like wild menus there's no drawbacks at all you could just experiment on a whim at any moment and be like, okay, I'm going to add two earth gin to Isaac and just see what that does. And like, that'll make him a knight or something. I forget what he is now. And you know, I'll add two fire to this person. Or what if I swapped one from each? So one of them has fire and one of them has, has earth or like, okay, this person is, has a bunch of like innate, water spells that they're doing but what if i added fire gin to her like what would that do that stuff is like fascinating and really fun and adds this level of build crafting that i wasn't really expecting in golden yeah. sun of all games which is a game that i you know as we've talked about on the show before i consider to be and a lot of people consider to be like one of the entry points to the genre like if you're interested mm -hmm. in turn-based rpgs like it is one it's like pokemon and golden sun were like the ones for at a lot least of people. it was in that era in the game boy advance era yes yeah yeah and I guess I've just been really surprised at the amount of depth that that stuff adds to the game. And outside of that, I think one of the things that 
is most interesting to me because, and I'll talk about this a lot in the next section, one of the things that has always held me back from these kinds of games over the years, and we've talked about this on and off a little bit, but just to kind of double down on this point, the thing I hate the most in these kinds of games always is when you leave a town and you're in this big expansive world map, right? So you like, you see your character walking around on this big world map and you have no fucking clue where to go. And they make it even worse because as you're out in the open world, there are just random encounter battles, just like kicking your ass over and over again. So it's not even like, let me explore and find my way to, you know, X place or Y place or Z place. But instead is like, I'm checking out what's to the West because I think that what I need might be over there. It turns out it's not. I've gotten into like 45 different battles on the way there. It's like going through a cave in Pokemon and just fighting Zubat after Zubat after Zubat, <laughs> even though you don't know where you're going. It's yeah. that, but on a large scale. And I think Golden Sun is really, really good about pointing you in the exact direction you need to go. There's not a lot, there's not a lot of wiggle room in terms of what's next for you at any point in the game that I've played so far. And maybe that'll change as you know, you get better at exploring the world later. The only hitch for me is that they don't introduce fast travel until the second game, which like I, I just really wish I had fast travel because there are a couple things from some of the earlier towns that I've been in that I'm like, I want to go back there and like unlock X, Y, or Z thing. Like there, there's one of the uh, psionic powers that I've unlocked that I know I can use in the starting town where you begin the game and I'm like do I want to trek all the way back there to try and get that thing or is it really not that worth it and there's like a gin that I know is in a town that I have left behind a long time ago and I know how to unlock them now or like get to them which I could have done when I was there for the first time but like didn't really fully think it through so I thought that it was like oh you're gonna have to backtrack later didn't have to backtrack but now I do is it worth it to go back and get them the answer is yes I'm gonna go get them <laughs> but I just think Golden Sun has been very very good about pointing you in the direction you want to go at all times and and i think it has almost conditioned me to play other games like this which is why i understand or why i'm starting to wrap my head around this idea that it has been an entry point for so many people into the genre at that specific time because what it teaches you to do the most classic thing in the world everyone has always heard this if you play at any old school rpgs like this but just talk to everyone in town and it'll be worth it you know either you'll get like very silly weird dialogue you can read everybody's minds in this game which is hilarious and super weird and fun to do even though you really only need it as far as i can tell like two or three times in the whole game where like it's like plot critical to do that it's like around when they introduce the idea and then after that it's just like a fun nice thing to have but talking to everybody will point you in the direction of the next thing they'll tell you exactly like hey go west here then south here then west here and then that's how you'll get to the next thing or alternatively it'll be like i'm not telling you my secrets read their mind my secret is in the attic you know <laughs> i'm so glad they don't know my secret which is go west yes i have i have found that to be just very helpful uh, in terms of helping me through the one thing that I think holds me back from finishing games like this. That having been said, I'm also, I would say, mixed to positive on the story so far. I'll report back as I get closer to the end uh, because I kind of want to see how it all wraps up. But where I'm at right now, I feel like I've had four different little mini quests that have all kind of culminated in what is actually the main quest of the game. So like in the beginning of the game, if you play Golden Sun, you know this already, but just bear with me. In the beginning of the game, you are in this town that is known for having this temple that in which resides these like elemental stones. You are essentially tasked to steal the stones for like the main antagonist of the game, et cetera, et cetera. And then after those stones are stolen, the like elder in your town is like, hey, go get them back. 
cool, easy. Like we're going and finding gems, classic RPG shit. Like that is the mm-hmm. most classic shit possible. Easy to figure out. As you make your way to the first town, there's like a bunch of people who are like running out of town. Like we got to get out of here. It's not safe here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You find that there's like thieves who have stolen a bunch of shit from an inn. There's a character there who becomes one of your party members who is the one who can read minds, who is like trying to stop them by himself. You go and save him. It turns out that he has been abandoned by like his lords and lieges or whatever, and you need to go find them. You go try and find them. Turns out they've been kidnapped, but you can't go to where they've been kidnapped because there's this other town where everybody's been turned to trees. You got to go save (laughs) the tree people from the evil tree demon that has turned them into trees. Turns out the tree demon is actually a nice guy, but he was, you know, corrupted by an evil force. And you're just like going through all of these different side missions one after another until it leads you to the first major event, which is like it's this place called Mercury Tower where you go through a dungeon that's filled with puzzles that are like actually good puzzles and not the bad version of Golden Sun puzzles, which is just jumping from point to point and figuring out how to jump correctly or pushing logs, which I hate even more in a lot of ways. But it's like actually good, interesting puzzles. And then it culminates in like a big cutscene and story moment that it's like, oh, yeah, this game is about something and is about like a major plot and a major quest that you need to embark on. And all of that side stuff you've done has been kind of inconsequential on the way to get there. But it was just stuff that you needed to get through. So there's like some pacing stuff going on. All of that said, everyone says that the second game is better than the first game in every single way. And oh, yeah. I'm, and I'm enjoying yeah. the sec- the first game enough that I think once I hit that second one, I'm going to be like, yes. I can teleport anywhere. I have a party of completely different people who are way more interesting and have like travel banter and party banter. I'm living my best life. Like I think I think that from what I've heard, at least the Lost Age just kind of improves on everything that Golden Sun was doing. But the fact that I'm enjoying Golden Sun and like want to finish it as much as I do already, I think is setting me up for loving the Lost Age when I get to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we played these games for the Game Boy Advance episode, I just remember really struggling. Like you mentioning all that stuff in the first one. I was like, should I? I play golden sun again and i'm like nah like just yeah. hearing that again i was just like the pacing of that game is really bad just to be blunt like yes. it's and i i played a lot of these games i have i'm pretty patient with with rpgs and golden sun is kind of my limit of patience yeah not to say that i don't like it i do admire it but it just i never had that formative time with it so it was harder to get into but the lost age i just kind of jumped into because i knew that was the one people liked and i did like it way more but it does feel weird to not play the first and start it. Like, yes, you do. Actually, it's like a FF14. You have to play Realm Reborn. Right. That's how patient I am. I played all of Realm Reborn. It's 100 <laughs> hours. It took years and money. Uh, <laughs> the Lost Age seems wonderful. And I even enjoy the DS one. I, I don't like report back because I'm willing to be swayed. I'm kind of comfortable being like lukewarm on this whole series. But it does seem like Lost Age is the one. And I really liked playing the Shining Force games, which Camelot used to develop. And Mm -hmm. I I like their similar to Majesty. They just love fantasy. It seems like they love the weirdness and goofiness of fantasy. And they have like, I mean, the Shining games have like uh, Shining Force, at least. Uh, has no pretense about trying to tell a grander story. I love that Shining Force also has the like yes or no options yeah, that Golden Sun like their, has, like that's the like exact their secret same ones. signature. Yeah, but I definitely want to hear how you like Lost Age because that's the one that seems to be the reason to stick through the first. Yeah, I I, I will say I I started you know year of second chances. I started Golden Sun from the specific perspective of like I just want to see not if I was wrong about it because I was right at the time that we were playing it. Like when we played 
Golden Sun originally for the Game Boy Advance uh, bonus episode that we did. That was not the right game for me at that time. And it slightly is the right game for me at this time, which I think I'm, I'm starting to feel very good about. It is like such a great game for just sitting down in front of the TV again on the Mii Mini Plus and just like kind of banging out like some levels or something um, or just like making my way to the next thing and then saving and being like, OK, next time I climb into bed, I'm going to like see the next story beat or whatever. So I think it's going to take me a long time to play through these games. I think I'm like seven or eight hours in something like that, if I'm not mistaken. But yes, I will report back as I play more of it. I just I think you and I have heard a lot and we've talked about a lot um, from people who listen to this show like report back when we say we're going to report back on things or just like bring games to the show even if there's like no major updates and i feel like golden sun feels like a perfect one for me where it's like i just <laughs> i just want to almost be held accountable in a way to finish yeah, this yeah. game so like here i am i'm coming back i'm saying i've played a lot more of it i still like it a lot and in fact i want to beat it definitely uh so expect to hear more about that cool very exciting why don't we take a quick break and then proceed to our last game for today yes two games two games okay very exciting bye-bye so I said one game because in our notes here, there's the name of one game and then there's a face winking. Yes. And I mistakenly thought the winking face was just for fun <laughs> and not an actual taunt and or threat. Yes. So here's the deal. On this trip, I played a bunch of stuff. As I mentioned, uh, I played a lot of Golden Sun. Um, mm -hmm. I played a bunch of Pokemon Unbound. But the two main things that I have played on this trip are Dragon Quest games. One of them, which I'll talk about in a bit, specifically for the year of second chances, is Dragon Quest VI. I'll talk about why that is in a minute. The other thing, and the reason that I was messaging people in Discord and everything about Game Boy and Game Boy Color games is I really, really want to... I don't, I don't know if it's like a this year thing, but like just in my life, like maybe by the time I'm like retired or something, I want to just like sit down and play every Dragon Quest game. Like I just mm -hmm. I want to finish all of them. And yeah. my thought was like, what better way to kick this off than to play the shortest one, which is also the first one. So I have played through all of and finished Dragon Warrior, the first Dragon right, Quest the that we got. One. Yes. Yeah. Um, I played through the Game Boy Color version, which was released as a double pack. It was Dragon Warrior 1 and 2. It was remakes of, of the, both of those games for the Game Boy Color. Um, I, if I recall correctly, they were released in the States on the NES, but then got the bundle pack together for the Super Nintendo the Game Boy Color, um, and now you can play them on like iOS and stuff uh, and also on Switch. It's so funny how this series was localized to the US at the time because it was called Dragon Warrior instead of Dragon Quest. Yeah. And we didn't get the Toriyama art on the cover. It was this sort of like yeah. generic D&D &D manual cover yeah. art that doesn't match the game at all. One of the two main things that makes these games like a huge deal and the reason that they are so important culturally to the genre and to video games in general they just removed entirely for the for the ports, yeah, right it's very funny it's kind of embarrassing with honestly. the exception of like the the um art or the sprite work for the enemy designs so like the slimes and the drackies and the skeletons like they all look like they should but yeah the branding of everything bizarre so here's the deal coming hot off the heels of that golden sun discussion and talking about the things that I hate the most about those kinds of games. Dragon Warrior 1, I, I knew this going in. I've known this for a long time, but I needed to confront myself with it. That is a game that is literally entirely about grinding and running around a big open world trying to figure out where to go next. Like, yeah, th it is a game that is not super interested in telling you where to go outside of vaguely. They just want you to like explore and poke at the edges of things. 
I would say even for the most part, how to accomplish the main plot is a little bit up in the air. The game opens with you talking to a king and they're talking in like old English, which I love, or at least in the iOS version, they talk in old English in the Game Boy Color version. There's like some weird translation stuff where they're not really talking in the old English anymore. And also they're referencing Erdrich a lot, who is the protagonist of the third game, um, yeah. which is interesting. Uh, but in Japan, I didn't know this in Japan, instead of Erdrich, he's called Lotto, L-O-T-O, um, mm. which is fun. So they still call him Lotto in Dragon Warrior. Confusing. But anyway, he's like, you are the descendant of Lotto, the Dragon Lord has shown up and, uh, you know, is, is bringing doom and gloom into the land. We need you to go kill him. That's the game. That's the mm-hmm. whole game. It's worth like historically worth mentioning. Dragon Warrior is like in Dragon Quest one, one of the first versions of what we all consider to be a turn based RPG. It's not to say there aren't other ones that came before that. But Yuji Hori, the developer of this game and Akira Toriyama and, and the team in the mines at Enix, the idea for this game was to take this genre, which had been laden specifically with like games that required a, a previous knowledge of like tabletop board games and D&D and like deep, deep, deep mechanics, getting super involved in stats and all this shit and saying, we're going to pare this down into something that anyone can play. Yuji Hori specifically wanted Dragon Quest one to be like a game that anyone could pick up and play, even if they didn't know anything about video games, if they had never played a game before Dragon Quest could be it. And for all intents and purposes, succeeded like they did a good job the game is like a a household name in at least japan and is a huge deal and has been a huge deal ever since but in a lot of ways it really did become the blueprint for a lot of the other games that we refer to and talk about a lot these days like when we are talking about other rpgs a lot of them owe what they are to dragon quest one specifically but also just like the lineage of dragon quest we've talked about this a lot in the past dragon quest 5 is maybe the reason we have pokemon dragon quest 4 and 6 are in a lot of ways responsible for the things that we love in the later final fantasies and octopath traveler um there's just like a lot of connective tissue between the mechanics that became like the box art mechanics that they added to each of the dragon quest games and like entire subgenres of rpgs where it's like yeah. dragon quest came up with something that just became its own that became its own thing after that yeah dragon warrior and dragon quest one fascinating in terms of like getting it really 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 right the first time i think because the game just opens up with you being like hey you're a legendary hero you got to go kill this big dragon guy you leave the castle you're in the big open world as i mentioned and right across the river from where you are you can see the castle of the evil dragon lord so it's like okay cool i immediately know where the game ends i know where the game begins i know where the game ends what you need to do after that is just like figure out what to do next and that just involves wandering around you don't even have weapons in the beginning you you're literally just fighting with your fists you have no armor uh even though your like sprite has armor on like you actually don't have any armor on your stats are like zero (laughs) so you just need to go like fight slimes for a while until you level up once which will also probably at that point give you enough money to be able to go like buy a stick that you can equip (laughs) But the game is so much about grinding and the way that they telegraph that, which I think is actually really brilliant considering this is from the 80s, from the mid 80s, is when you're walking around the world, there are bridges that connect the different parts of the overall world map. It's kind of set up like an archipelago. And if you cross a bridge into a new quote unquote like island or a new area, the enemy difficulty ramps up pretty significantly so the idea is you're supposed to spend a bunch of time in one spot grind until you feel like you can take on the enemies in the next spot which honestly creates a really like streamlined approach to traveling throughout the world because just level gating where you're supposed to go next actually does kind of circumvent that problem that i have where like 
I'm trying to follow story beats and I don't know what's supposed to be next because in this game, there really aren't story beats. Yeah. What happens is like you leave the castle, you wander around, you equip a stick. Eventually you've leveled up enough that you can go into a dungeon. The two big resources in this game that are like the most important things are keys because you need a key to open every door in this game. Sorry, every locked door in this game of which there are a lot, which will be the things that are preventing you from getting from point A to point B and torches, which you need to be able to light up the area around you in a dungeon. And those are both finite resources. So so it's like difficult to find them. The first cave you go into, I was expecting to go in and like, I don't, I don't know, find anything that I was like going to be able to equip that would make the game a little bit easier because I was like, this game really can't just be about battling over and over and over again, can it? Dear listener, it sure can. But when you make your way into that dungeon and make your way to the end of the dungeon, what you find there, I actually think is more interesting than like a cool sword I can equip or something. It is the tomb of Erdrich. And the tomb is oh. like, hey, you are if you're here, that means that you're my descendant. Nobody else would have been able to survive this dungeon. What I need you to do is go to the four corners of the world, talk to these four sages and and acquire all of the items that they have. And you can use those to beat the Dragon Lord, which makes it very easy again to know where to go next. You just have to go to the four corners of the world. And there's going to be one of those sages is like in the area that you're in now. As far as I can tell, I don't know the full lineage yet. And I'll report back maybe eventually if I ever play all of these games, like while we're doing the podcast i think that the four sages are also heirs or like part of the lineage of the party members from dragon quest 3 mm, also yeah unclear but it just it makes it very simple to know what to do next so because there's like a lack of a story all you really need to know is like i just have to go again talk to all the people in the town to see if there's anything interesting going on in that town like i in the first like hour to two hours of this game you'll start to hear rumblings that there's somebody who sells keys somewhere like this guy left his wife because he he was obsessed with keys and then collected so many of them he didn't know what to do but he was too embarrassed to go back home so he just set up a <laughs> shop like out in the middle of the woods somewhere where you can go buy keys great eventually i'll go find that guy but outside of that it's like cool i gotta find these four things i gotta just level up enough to go to the dragon lord's castle the draco lord as they call him in, in the game boy color version um <laughs> and you just gotta go fight a bunch of bosses and that's it that's the whole video game and you know what it was great it took like nine to ten hours i would say total which is like yeah. not nothing but you know just i spent so much time on airplanes i spent so much time waiting for airplanes that i ended up knocking the whole game out in like about two two and a half days total just like ripped through it because it's so mindless which honestly i really appreciated and it really just kind of set me up i think to be excited about the future ones the the one thing that's holding me back is that i would say most people will say that either the second game or the sixth game is the worst one and mm. i've started playing the second one and it is rough it's there are a lot of quality of life improvements. I'm very happy with some of the stuff that they've added to that game to make it a little bit easier to make your way through. But it is it's big. It's big enough. It feels a lot actually like um, Pokemon Gold and Silver, where the entirety of the world map from the first game is just like one small piece of the second game. If that gives you any indication, like they I have see. expanded yeah. dramatically, but they haven't really made the game more fun to kind of compensate for that. I adore the hubris of the NES era sequels. Right? Yes. They're all like this and like Simon's Quest. Mm. Uh, they're all weird and bad, but like beautiful in their own way yes beautiful ambitious disasters Stephen. yes yes exactly i didn't want to read myself too much but that's exactly <laughs> it yes so i i don't know i 
I think that the Game Boy Color version of 2 might not be the one for me. I think maybe I'll kind of expand outwards and see. Maybe I'll play it on the Switch or something. There is something to be said, though, about having like safe states and stuff that makes it yeah. a million times better to get through. And Dragon Quest 3 is is historically the one that like really solidified the series. Yes. Like that is that for many is the one. Yeah. Which is why we're getting the remake at some point. So this, um, this is my plan. This is my tentative plan. Play okay, one, cool. which I've done. Find the way that I'm going to play two and do that. Yeah. Wait for the remake of three to play that. I, mm. I think that that to me seems like the most obvious trajectory. And then four, five, six. I mean, five, we are five. We already played on the DS Four I will probably play on the DS six. I am also playing on the DS seven can decide between 3DS or PS1 kind of mixed on, on which one I really want to go in on eight. The ever lingering question. I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. Yangus is waiting. He's there for us. Yangus, Yangus is there on the PS2 and on mobile and on the Nintendo 3DS. Nine DS exclusive probably will never get remade. Weird video game. Yeah. Ten we can't play. Although I did learn recently that you can play the Nintendo Switch version of Dragon Quest X on the Iron Odin 2 with an English translation. Uh, sorry, the offline version of Dragon Quest X. Got it. So yeah, for those who don't know, that's the MMO, basically. It's an MMO. But they, but in Japan, they only in Japan, they released an offline version, which is just the story of the game, like wrapped up as a Nintendo Switch game. That is that is a, a thing I'm tentatively considering, but again, I have a long way to go. Dragon Quest XI, I played it already. I already beat it. We already did it. Great. Done. Will I play it again by the time we get there? I have no idea. But Dragon Quest 12 is also coming eventually. So that's that's the that's the current trajectory for me. Uh, does that mean every week of this show I'm going to come back with a new Dragon Quest game? Probably not. But I did think it was interesting to go play through all of Dragon Quest one, which is a thing that I kind of did like as a joke when I was sitting in in uh, in an airport waiting for my plane to show up because we showed up so many hours early that it was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? There was nobody there. There was no one in security. We showed up three and a half hours early and there was nothing there was nothing to do except just sit and play Dragon Quest. That's what I did. That having been said, the game that I played the most on my trip, and I think the reason I started this quest at all is because for the year of second chances, just continuing this on, yeah. I, I wanted to play Dragon Quest six again. I wanted to yeah. see more of it. And I actually went back and I listened to our conversation. I think it was in the patron sequel to our DS episode that we talked the about it a little up. bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so we, we did an episode uh, as we do every year, you know, the lineage and, and our uh, all encompassing conversation about a, a console. We did one for the Nintendo DS, of which there are a bunch of Dragon Quest games. There's four, five and six, as we mentioned. It was the first time that five and six had been localized and released in the West, which is cool. And four also is kind of in a weird spot where it's a great port, but they also didn't have enough time. Apparently I just learned this recently. They didn't have enough time to add the party chatter into it. So like you can't uh. talk to your party members while you're playing it. So a lot of people actually say the best way to play four is on mobile, which is where they added that back mm. in and finally cool. had the time to like translate all that stuff. So that's a heads up if you want to play those games, but in our conversation on the follow up to that bonus episode that we did specifically for the Patreon, it's called DS. I love you. And it's just like we there was so much other stuff to talk about that wasn't our top 10 and wasn't you know related to what we were talking about on that episode that we just wanted to do like a special extra bit talking about yeah. like the preparation process, other games that we wanted to shout out, taking questions from listeners, things like that. I think that episode existed just because like uh, that was before we had our new model for console episodes where we have we don't limit it to top 10. 
because we want to give like a better overview of the system. Yeah. So like that was like the percolation of that idea. Like yes. we have there's especially for the DS, we played so many games. Yeah. That I'm glad we had that follow-up. I, I think I think between us it was like 180 something games that we had played, which is wild. For Dragon Quest VI, I actually don't think I got to it. Cause I think I got to a point where I was just like, obviously I'm not gonna have two of the same series on my top I yes, wanted to, yes. I could have but it's like we kind of made an we, we made a choice where it's like we could either if we're really just going off what are our 10 favorite DS games it's going to be all the Dragon Quest games and three and Elite Beat Agents that's the <laughs> list thank you for listening but so it's okay we got to choose like one unless we feel like really strongly that this is like the most honest list choose one and it was so clearly five for us yeah you ask anybody who's played all of these games or anybody who has like opinions about the different number Dragon Quest yeah. games like everyone will point to five or 11 as their best and the favorite sure not to say that the other ones don't have their own fan bases but those are the most popular yes exactly um so in in the in the lead up to that and and just to be clear on on the ds i love you episode our conversation about it was like you and i dipped into four i think i I played a bit more four than you did um i liked four a lot but i didn't get very far four i'll just mention is interesting because the whole conceit of the game is that you're playing as all the different party members as their own little individual side stories until they all meet up later, which is then kind of reflected and and becomes a main plot point of Dragon Quest XI eventually, which is very cool. But it's it's interesting. And I like that experience, but like it was clearly not going to be the one for me. Five, I started playing. You start off as a kid on a ship with your dad. You can't do anything. You can't read. He's doing everything for you. Fascinating opening. Really great game. One of the best games ever made, maybe. Dragon Quest VI, I also started. And immediately I was like, it's fine. Like I didn't really get what was going on honestly like i didn't really understand the scope of the story i didn't really like any of the characters i didn't really understand my character's place in the world playing that game for like two or three hours was like i i I think i'm I don't I don't think this is going to be the one for me. So it became obvious that five was going to be it. And on that episode, you and I didn't even mention six. We talked about four and five. We didn't even like bring six up as a possibility. Yeah, it's commonly it, like I don't think people like hate it, but it's not in the conversation yeah. the same way. Yeah, the other yeah these are. are all yeah. some of the best RPGs ever made, you know. So when, when you're ranking <laughs> right. those, it's like even the ones at the bottom of the list are going to be worth checking out, even just like mm-hmm. from like an education standpoint, you know. But I was like, let me give six a real shake this time. Uh, let me, let me give it a real shot. Seeds of salvation, right? Uh, six, six is the realms of revelation. Oh, I think, I think seeds of salvation might be three actually. Now that I'm remembering. I think you might be right. Yeah, that's three. Sorry. So Dragon Quest six, the realms of revelation. I'm playing it on the retroid pocket, which again, only has one screen. The beautiful thing about the Dragon Quest games is you can pretty much play entirely on one screen. If you want, what I have is, uh, the top screen is set to, the top screen of the DS is set to the screen of the Retroid. And if I press R3 at all, it'll just swap to the other screen in the like few oh, moments cool. where you need it, which is great. Uh, also, the Retroid has a touch screen, makes it very easy. That having been said, I started playing this game. The game opens with uh, you and two of your party members. And you're like, we're here. We're at Murdaw's castle. Murdaw is the name of like the big villain. We're at Murdaw's castle. We're going to do the big fight. And you wander into the castle. And by wander in, I mean, you jump onto the back of a dragon and the dragon flies you to the castle. You walk oh, into yeah. the castle. There are no enemies at all and you go and fight Murdaw and Murdaw is like absolutely not I'm completely uninterested in fighting you why do you think you're even remotely close to powerful enough to be here I'm just going to turn you into stone and kill you right now and he does he turns the three of you into stone and you all die and 
the next thing that happens is your character, the player character, wakes up in like a village at the top of a mountain and his sister, who he doesn't remember having a sister, is like, wake up, sleepyhead, it's time for the big festival and we need you to go run an errand. And then you just start doing like classic opening RPG stuff where you're like in this town, you need to go to another town, you need to like haggle with some people in a town that's literally called Haggleton uh, and you need to <laughs> re- return back with your findings um, and and uh, like create a crown for this like big nighttime festival. They do my favorite Dragon Quest thing in the world where there's just like drunk people lying on the ground all over the place because they had too much fun. Uh, I love yeah. that. It's like one of, one of my favorite weird Dragon Quest things. Yeah, I think that the town NPCs in Dragon Quest are, are really good uses of environmental storytelling. Yes. You know, especially in 11. I feel like every town in 11 has so much unique variety. Yes. Like there's the town that everyone speaks in haikus. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. After all of this happens, you go, you're, you're like set out on this like kind of mini quest to just like go help somebody. I might be, I'm actually getting the order of this wrong, but it doesn't really matter. You have to go help somebody uh, out in the woods who's like gone missing. And when you go help them, they're hanging off of the edge of the world. Like the world seems to be floating on top of another world and he's hanging off the edge and as you reach down to grab him and pull him up as you do that the weight shifts and your character falls into this pit and then dies a second time and wakes up as a ghost in the world and the world is completely different everyone is different nobody remembers you nobody knows what's going on and you also don't know what's going on because you're a ghost nobody can see you so you're not even talking to people you're just hearing what they're talking about like in the world and i was like oh no this is a multiverse story. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like totally uninterested in that. But I was like, I, you know, for the show and just for my own edification, like I want, I want to just like keep going. So I continue playing this game, figure out, you know, okay, how do I turn myself back from a ghost into a regular person that people can see and meet? And then as soon as you do that, everybody's like, you're the prince. You've gone missing here. You, oh, you're so buff now. You were so weak and scraggly <laughs> before, but now you're really buff. Uh, let's bring you back to the castle. And, you know, uh, we'll have you like go hang out with the king and queen again. They've been asleep for so long because they've been so just like bummed out that you've gone missing. They've just been lying in bed uh, and they're like unresponsive. You go and you try and talk to them. They don't they don't wake up. They can't talk to you, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, somebody shows up and is like, hey, I need to send you out on this quest to go find this item, which might help. I'm not going to explain everything that happens in this game, but I do think it is worth mentioning in the first couple hours. And sorry, this is a little bit of a spoiler. So like if you want to go in like with nothing, this is probably the time to just stop the episode. Thanks for listening. We love you into the castle online. Um, bye bye. But you go through, you know, the, the rigmarole of like finding this item, starting to build your party together, et cetera, et cetera. And the big reveal as you go and fight who is the main villain, you go fight Murdaugh and kill Murdaugh in the first like, I don't know, thir- like two or three chapters of this game. So this is like maybe f- five or six hours in you go and kill Murdaugh and he turns into the king and he reveals to you that what's happened is the dream world and the real world have kind of become overlapped in a way and it's unclear who is from what world at this point but the idea of the dream world specifically and I think this is where it steers away from the multiverse story and becomes something significantly more interesting the dream world is comprised of the people as they see themselves when they're dreaming. Uh, So it's like your own, your own version of yourself that's in your head, whether that's, you know, positive or negative is what's appearing in the dream world. So the King, because of his inability to actually take out the main villain of the world, despite sending so many troops and armies and soldiers to go try and kill him, hasn't been able to pull it off and has essentially just like sent all these people to their death. He feels like he's the villain at this point. So he appears in the dream world as the actual villain that you need to go kill in the real world, which I think is like a brilliant, 
great little twist of fate. Yeah. It's unclear if you are actually the prince or not. I don't really know what's going on there. Does the prince see himself as just a person who lives in a small village who doesn't want to be associated with royalty? I'm not really sure. I'll find out later, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, but all of your party members are also kind of thrust into this, like, am I real? Am I not real? Is this like the version of myself that I see in real life or is this not? And it just has become an extremely, extremely cozy game for me. Not in like the the weird negative way, but like in like a really like positive ritual. Like I love to sit down and just like play Dragon Quest six for a bit. It does a great job of avoiding all the pitfalls that I've talked about in the previous couple games where I always know where I'm supposed to go next. I always know what I'm supposed to do next. I feel like Dragon Quest five. I think I had a lot of trouble with in those instances where there are there are a lot of moments in that game where it's like, where the fuck do I go next? That almost feels by design, though. Like I, I not to say that it doesn't get in the way because it did for me even. Yeah. But like I think like you mentioned that game begins when you're a little kid and i think what they're really trying to communicate through the game design in those opening chapters is the fact that you are beholden to a caretaker yes that like, and the world is you know, so much you, bigger than you could possibly understand exactly and then it kind of flips as you grow up and become a father and also a pokemon trainer but uh i digress continue with the uh, with six yeah no i i think that's a good point though but i yeah. I, I also think you know regardless of the intention or not you you then have to step back and be like okay but is it is it fun you know and like there are moments sure. there are moments in five where despite I, I again i think that's one of the best games ever made there are moments in five where i was like i have no idea where i'm supposed to go next no i agree it's more it's frustrating better, than anything it's conceptually more interesting than it is in execution sometimes for yes sure. and yeah. the other thing that i think all of these games struggle with up until six is just the amount of grinding you have to do is like intense like even in five five opens with grinding just to be clear like yeah. five, like five once you once you make your way out of the like i'm a baby section and you like have a weapon <laughs> and you like need to do something for the first time like you you need to grind a little bit before you can move on to the next town yeah i think um it's interesting we, we've talked about this a lot you know because i think grinding is often kind of a negative term and then there are some games where i think they've centered around grinding in a way that makes it interesting like yes. i think octopath is a great example of that and what's weird is that i actually think so i haven't played dragon warrior dragon quest one but i was thinking a lot about final fantasy one when you were mentioning it because final mm. fantasy one is almost exactly the same yeah. in structure where i've only played the pixel remaster of final fantasy one I brought it to the show a couple of years ago, I believe, maybe in 2021, maybe a little bit later. That game is similar where it's like you make a party of four and it's basically like, cool, go save the world. Yeah. And you only you have to talk to townspeople to learn where to go. It's a surprisingly open game. And I think what's interesting about the current state of game design is that we're now, you know, a lot of modern games veer towards open worlds in a way that I think a lot of retro games almost accidentally did or maybe we're trying to but there just wasn't enough knowledge about game design to like i don't want to say properly execute it but it was a little bit more archaic in some ways yeah you know and it's and it's interesting that like dragon warrior and final fantasy one have this openness and are and are built around grinding so once you kind of know that that's the experience that that's what you're supposed to do it doesn't feel as tedious as when you have to grind to see story beats. Yes. Because that's not why you're there. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes. I, I, and I think that is the main reason I was able to make it through Dragon Quest one and, and Dragon yeah. Quest six, I think is interesting because I'm, I'm not even fully sure what the full scope of the story, like yeah. where I'm at now, I'm, I think 10 or 11 hours into the game. I am going to fight Murdaugh a second time, but this time is quote unquote, the real one. And like, who knows if that's even true still. <laughs> um, but yeah. if I, you know, the first time I went and fight, fought Murdaugh, I was like, damn, I thought that this was going to be the main villain of the game. And here I am 
defeating him in the first couple hours. Now I'm like, I know that this is one of the longer Dragon Quest games and I'm about to fight this guy a second time. Is he also not, again, the main villain of the world? And if that's the case, then who is? And I know that that's a thing that a lot of people dislike about Dragon Quest VI, but I'm finding it to be exhilarating to never know what's next and to just like really enjoy hanging out with the party that I have assembled, who I really like. I love the party in this game. I think you in particular, if you if you play the first party member you get is this guy named Carver, who's like this extremely jacked guy who just wants to be a soldier and he has a big mohawk. Um, He's so fun. Souls. I'm in. Yeah, he rocks. But like, I love the party and I love hanging out with them. And I love that nobody is sure what's real or what's not. And I love that that's extending out to me as the player, not even knowing what's possible in the story. And also to know that this is a follow up to Dragon Quest V, which again is like, yeah one of the greatest games of all time. And it's like a pretty straight narrative story like that. It is, you're just following the life of this kid as he grows up and, and becomes a hero, et cetera, et cetera. Um, six is fascinating in that it is trying to tell a much more ambitious story in that or not. I'm not gonna say it's more ambitious because I think five is very ambitious, but I think, I think six is ambitious in a completely different way where it's like trying to break from convention narratively and trying to do something in terms of just like, almost cashing all of the goodwill checks that five had accumulated in a lot of ways where it's like, you know that this is going to be worth it eventually, but we're going to string you along a little bit until you get there. And I could see that turning a lot of people off because their goodwill checks are definitely not as, uh, they're not, they're not as money rich as mine are, I think in a lot of ways, because like, <laughs> I just love what these games do and, and what this team is capable of. And I am just kind of like putting my faith in the fact that six will pay off and will be worth it in the end, but remains to be seen at the moment. I'm loving it, loving it, loving it, loving it. And I'm definitely, I know this is like one of the things, if I was a doll, I would say if you pulled my string, but it reminds me of Chrono Cross and that like, it's also worth noting that, I mean, not only just for the like other dimension dream part of it, but I think you and I are attracted to the games that follow the hit. Yeah, they're all some type of nightmare in terms of like <laughs> their surreal structure. Like Majora's Mask is a great example. Mm-hmm. Ocarina comes out is immediately cited as one of the best games ever made. And that pressure to follow up a masterpiece yeah. or what people are calling a masterpiece is very evident in the text of Majora's Mask. Yes. I think Chrono Cross is similar where it's like, how do you follow Chrono Trigger? Another game immediately being talked about as one of the best ever made. And you get a very meditative sad and weird game that not a lot of people (laughs) liked as much Uh, and that's the thing it's like sometimes you get another hit like Majora's Mask and other times you get kind of I mean Chrono Cross did very well but I don't think it's remembered the same way by any stretch right and Dragon Quest 6 sounds like it's like one of the lesser hits of the series but I think it's worth checking out those games because you you never know when it's going to connect with you personally right yes and I I think I think that's always the case with media right like I as I talked about the last section like I'm experiencing that currently with Golden Sun where like that didn't connect with me and now it is Dragon Quest 6 definitely didn't connect with me the first time I tried to check it out because I was like this is a little bit too paint by numbers for me until it extremely wasn't anymore um And I'm just kind of curious to see where it all lands. And and there are people out there who have Dragon Quest six towards the top of their list. And I don't know if I'll end up there, but I've definitely played a lot more of this one than I have of a lot of the other Dragon Quest games I've tried to dip into. So I, uh, I'm excited to play a lot more of it. And this is one that I hope to report back on if I ever get to the end of it. But that's Dragon Quest six realms of revelation. It's an interesting wow. video game. I definitely want to go back to it. I feel like between the two of us at some point in time, 
in our lives collectively we, we will have played every final fantasy and dragon quest yes which is kind of thrilling yeah i do feel like i i had this realization while i was this is not a joke i was in the woods i <laughs> I, and I saw Squall's face and I was like, one day Vital I'll go back to, to Battle Garden. Yeah. yeah. I, I was in the woods and I had this sudden realization because I was thinking about getting back and playing more Dragon Quest VI. Like when the sun went down and we were like lighting a fire and trying to make dinner or whatever. I was like, I'm excited to play Dragon Quest VI later. And I had this thought. I was like, the one thing that I am like an unhinged fan about is Dragon Quest which is wild to think about because I've never, I've never been that about anything really in my life before, you know, like the, the person who like when Dragon Quest 12 comes out, I'm going to be just horrible. I'm going to become <laughs> just the most like perverse, horrible version. I'm going to be like a gremlin of merch. I'm going to be You're surrounded gonna buy by shit. I'm going to buy, yeah. I'm going to buy whatever they tell me to buy. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. I'm going to be there. And I've never been that way about anything in my life before. And I, and I just, I just had this realization like, man, Dragon Quest means so much to me and is so helpful. I think it is like, it just makes me feel so good. Like as a person to be able to experience something like that and to know that at any moment I can like break glass in case of emergency. If I'm ever sad about anything, I could just like, okay, here's Dragon Quest and then just play that and have a great time. I I think I think that series is exactly that for a lot of people not mm -hmm. to reduce your like you know unique relationship with it but I think that's I think why it's so successful because it has like everyone kind of knows what they're getting into yeah it's banking on that relationship and that familiarity but also each entry just has enough uniqueness that we're talking about them as distinct entries yes you know in, in a much more easier way than say Pokemon right it's like you know this one divided the special and physical attack it's like, uh -huh. <laughs> is there a dream world Jigglypuff no. is a fairy type now. What is Steel good against? Oh. <laughs> I didn't mean to put a pin in the air mattress of this episode. I but have no idea. That's what I did. Anyway, that's Dragon Quest, baby. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, I, I'm excited to go back to it because I have all the, I mean, I have so many DS games still at any time I can go back. Yeah. That's just like, I think whenever we do those console episodes, we need some distance, you know? Yes. That's what makes me continuously playing Baldur's Gate three. So disturbing is like, <laughs> we've done the game of the year episode. Like I don't need, I don't need any more data, even for the upcoming bonus. I'm like, Probably already pretty ready. We can record to it talk about today. It. Yeah, we can record it tonight. But I'm still playing. I cannot stop. I'm playing it tonight with my multiplayer uh, group. I love that. I cannot wait. I'm, but I'm really glad you had that relationship with Dragon Quest. I think I think there's a lot to critique about fandom and about like yeah, uh, if you can get to the point where you're basing your own personal validation on a series, that can be dangerous. Yeah, but it is also really nice to be like I just without critique love something yes you know that's how i feel about final fantasy 7 like the minute rebirth comes out i too will be disgusting <laughs> i'll probably not go outside for a week i'll probably beat it in like two nights even if and even if it's like completely off the wall like it goes totally off the rails i'm just so happy it exists yeah you know yeah so and also at any time i can play the original which is great uh, and i'd still do that i still I, we did our bonus about it but like i that's a game that i replay every so often i think that's also kind of important to have is like a game that is kind of a ritual in that way that you described yeah i want i i have a i have a lingering wonder and thought in my head if i'll do that with dragon quest one ever again like if you replay it because i just zipped through it like i wonder yeah. if i will ever be like you know what i would love to do again just play through the whole thing again because it's so it's like being like under 10 hours just makes it like kind of a no-brainer to yeah. kind of just fit into like any week 
for me. Whereas like, I do know there are a lot of people who go back and replay golden sun one and two, but like each of those are 30 ish hours just about. They're longer, um, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't feel like a thing I could just like casually go replay, you know? It is slightly disturbing to me. Not th- not to reduce your beautiful thought, but it is kind of funny to me that what was once like the new game that birthed a genre is now like, well, I'm at the DMV. I might as well like <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I might yeah. as well play this. Yeah. It's so funny. But yeah, I think like that that size of a game is a rare treat. And going back to tiny folks and also that sentiment about what is the two hour Baldur's Gate three. Yeah. Can you reduce it's the design by subtraction philosophy of, of team eco where it's like, can you find what is the heart and soul of this game and just do that yeah. in a very small time frame? There's a lot of power in that. My uh, when I was in film school, my my um, my screenwriting professor would frequently say uh, when you're writing your script, start writing the story, then delete the first 20 pages. And that's where your story actually begins. Yeah, which I, I feel like a lot of people could take that note. I totally agree. I think it's great advice. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Shall we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Cool. Uh, I, I'm losing my voice. I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost passed out here. You had a lot of passion today. I mean, you always do, but I think this, I felt very, uh, I came with I the heat. your energy. You I'm came refreshed with the by the wilderness. Yeah. I came with the, Hey, can we record a little later? Cause I need to get some extra <laughs> sleep. <laughs> it was worth it. So we had balanced out, you know, Yeah. for every hit, there's the weird dreamlike sequel. And <laughs> one of us has to be the other. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and again, you know, if you're, if you're new to the show from Godi, welcome. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, we're happy you're here. Uh, into the cast that online, like we said at the top is our website that has links to everywhere you can listen to the show. If you like the show a lot, honestly, we say it every week, the best way to help it grow is to share it with a friend. We don't do any advertising. It's all through word of mouth and it's amazing how well that's done for us. So really that is the best thing you can do is just recommend it to someone you think might like it. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which is also helpful. Yes. Thank you to those who have done so. Thank you. Uh, links to the Patreon are also into the cast at online. Uh, we have the the next big planned Patreon episode is uh, our D&D episode. We're going to, I'm running a campaign for a few of us, and that's going to be a companion piece to the Baldur's Gate 3 bonus. That's going to be coming out in like late February, early March, we're kind of giving it a loose deadline because we want to give that both episodes the time they need because they're both really big projects. So very excited to share that. But between now and then on the Patreon, we have our weekly show called Emmy Percent. Uh, that's where we have 10 minutes or less to address a listener submitted topic or question. Those have been so much fun. Uh, we've been doing them now for about over a year, I think. It's felt such like a natural addition to the show, which is cool. Yeah. Um, talk about deleting your first 20 pages. That's essentially what we're doing for any percent it's just like here's 10 <laughs> minutes and uh yeah we also soon in the near future will have our twilight princess bonus our plan right now is to record that in the next couple weeks so expect that towards the end of the month thank you so much for your patience for that episode we've had to rearrange our schedule a few times and we also have our bonuses for the first half of the year planned uh so right now that's going to be twilight princess first then Baldur's gate three then the speaking about being bumped, the big uncharted episode. Thank you for your patience, Nathan Drake. Uh, and then Tears of the Kingdom. Very, very excited for all that. And then, of course, GameCube will be our season premiere in the summer. Yes. Um, so it's kind of cool to have all of that planned out. Of course, if things come out and we're like, we got to talk about this, we'd be in a, in a weird 
unhinged night and we feel like we can do an impromptu thing we'll follow our hearts but that's what's planned currently yeah i will uh i'll, I'll give a, a shout out to our friends over at dlc which is a podcast that the two of us have been on but they they do a great episode at the beginning of the year every year that's uh they, they call their uh bold and cool ranch predictions where they just like try and predict what they think is going to happen in 2024 there's a website where you can like track how much of their stuff has come true it's great really great episode it's like literally my favorite podcast episode of the year every year i look forward to it all the time but i think it was jeff canada who brought up a really great point about 2024's release schedule which is this is the year in which i think we know the least about what's coming out and the two possibilities are as as we've actually talked about on the show either 2023 so many unbelievable video games that like of course the industry just like needs to take a year off yeah in a way like just chill out because actually a lot of the most exciting stuff that we know about is coming in 2025 like a lot of the games that we're most looking forward to are on the schedule for next year yeah alternatively and this is this is the thing that they brought up that like really gave me a brain blast alternatively the industry has learned from things like hi-fi rush and some of the more recent bethesda things not including starfield obviously but this idea that like hey maybe you don't need to release or you don't need to announce your game 12 24 36 months ahead of time even six months ahead of time maybe you can announce a game when it's ready and then it comes out and everybody can play it immediately and i'm wondering if that's the reason we haven't heard about a lot of stuff for 2024 is like we're gonna get like this is gonna be the year of shadow drops in a big way um Mm. i think that'd be very interesting uh so the reason i'm bringing that up is as you were just saying at any moment, our favorite game of 2024 can come out <laughs> yeah. and that game might supersede whatever bonus we had planned for that month. So, uh, yeah, potentially I, I'd rather not bump anything again, but yes. you know, well, we are always kind of keeping our feet on the ground to see what makes sense. So, and we'll always let you know ahead of time, but I think for the most part, that's, what's going to happen. I will, I will say it right now. The only reason I will make Nathan Drake wait another month <laughs> Is if Hornet shows up in yeah, Hollow Knight yeah. Silk Song. That is the only thing that I would bump Nathan Drake for again. <laughs> Poor Nathan. He keeps getting back up. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he shouldn't. That's the plot yeah. of Uncharted 4. No, I'm, I'm good. That's it. Thank you so much for listening. Into the cast at online. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this surprisingly long episode. Yeah. I mean, once Majesty comes up, you know I just... <laughs> That's what we're always saying. Yeah, don't mention Majesty around Steven. He will say, tax collector!